Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanal. I am your host. Uh, this week, the featured guest is composer Alex Shapiro. Alex is a wonderful, wonderful person. So much fun to talk to. You can gather that just by the fact that this conversation went on for two and a half, two and a half hours. Um, and there was never a point where I felt like we were at a lull or we ran out of things to say. It just organically unfolded. And I love that. Um, we shared some scotch, which is always fun. Um, and throughout this conversation, there's so many nuggets of advice, bite-sized, concise pieces of information that Alex just drops into the conversation. And even talking to her, I was like, oh my God, it blew my mind <laughs> hearing these things. Um, so I think you're going to get so much out of hearing what Alex has to say, her insights and perspective and, and knowledge, uh, being a composer of band music. Uh, she uses a lot of electronics. She works a lot with, uh, public schools, writing music for, um, public music programs at, at public schools. Um, and all of her work in arts advocacy. Uh, she is a wildlife photographer. She's a writer. She does so much. So, um, for anyone who's listening to the podcast, I have to apologize because at one at the very beginning of the conversation, Alex shows the view from her office window because she lives on an island off the coast of Washington State. So for those who are watching, you have the benefit of seeing that. Um, for those who are listening, we'll link to her website and there's a lot of photos on there. So um, in any case, uh, I think you're really all you're going to enjoy this a lot. Um, and then as for announcements this let's see was it 10 days from now 10 days from now the ear taxi festival is beginning ear taxi festival is a festival that takes place here in chicago it features uh local performers and composers and there's um performances throughout two weeks in each neighborhood of the city representing the um the makeup of the city and everything like that i've never been to it but i know it's awesome and i'm so excited uh, it takes place from September 15th to October 4th. Um, I'm not sure if it's live streamed or anything, but so for anyone who's in the area or if you might be able to make it, I guarantee it's going to be an awesome time. Uh, other than that, I don't think there are any other announcements. So as always, please like and subscribe, follow on uh, whatever platform you're listening from, and let's make some noise. My name is Adam Kanal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. The, the opening photo, you had me fooled. I thought that was you right now. I know. It looks like she's about to say something. She looks like she's going to say something. I think all I did was take a screenshot of you know one of my gazillions of Zooms and just slap it up there as like my, my still photo. Sometimes I know some people when they're in meetings and the meetings are really boring and they want to put up a photo, but they still want to make it look like they're still in the meeting. They'll put up a photo like that or even more, you know, more interesting, like they're they're engaged in the in the conversation. And it's a still photo. And it takes me a while sometimes to realize, oh, my gosh, they're not moving. That's not them. <laughs> That's funny. It's it's dastardly. It's dastardly. I tell you. 
It sounds like I don't um, do that. I have only done that once, and I had some good <laughs> doing it. Most of the time, what I do is this: I, if I have to go off camera for a second, I give people a, a reward. Um, that this this is what's oh. on the other side of my webcam. Yeah, ooh, so that's not bad to look at. It. It's frankly much better than looking at me. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what are, what are we looking at here? Are these... You're looking. I'm on the edge of San Juan Island, and you're looking at Canada and the United States. I'm right off the the British Columbia and Washington State border, and wow. um, so you're looking across uh, at some islands, and hopefully, um, I, I just had a beautiful little woodpecker on the suet feeder, which is the long one on the left of the picture, and then I have a lot of hummingbirds too. And they show up too, but who knows? It's gotten a little cloudy and almost like it might rain or something. So I don't know where the birds are. They might be taking shelter. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, there's oh, there one. We have one taker. That's a nuthatch. They take one sunflower seed out of the suet and then they usually skedaddle. They usually leave with it, but maybe maybe it's feasting on something else instead of the sunflower seeds. Uh, this guy's getting a little greedy, isn't he? A little greedy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's really nice to meet you and to see you. And, yeah. Uh, thank you for inviting me, you know, to to do this. This is fun. Absolutely. I it's such a pleasure to meet you too. I'm uh I was so excited and and, and honored to have you be a part of this. Uh it's 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 a, in, it's a cool series you've got going on. Uh, thank you. I I've been enjoying <laughs> it, it very is, much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's it's something that, you know, it came out of the whole quarantine experience and um i just i just wanted to have conversations with other musicians just see like just casual regular conversations and see what's going on yeah. what they're thinking about or what they're experiencing and and so uh it's it's so cool that it's it's you know continuously moving along and and now and now you and i get to talk i'm so excited <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, everybody has been hungry for more human connection ever since we were quarantined over a year and a half ago. And um, everybody is seeking good conversation and good connection with with people and interested always in meeting new people. I always am. I think it's really fun. And I think partially, in a sense, even before the pandemic kicked in, I have lived on this rock in the middle of nowhere for 15 years. So <laughs> I'm sort of used to having a remote life in the sense that I travel, or I used to, and when we were doing that, I travel constantly. Um, but when I'm home, I'm really home and very isolated from the rest of the scene, which frankly, for me, I have th seen as a very good thing. I like that. But I, it also makes me up my game a little bit with connection uh, with people, you know, in terms of emails, Zooms, this kind of thing, just socially. And this is a social one, you know. It's a, it's nice to visit. Yeah. Yeah. You, By the way, is my mic level uh, suitable? Because I can make it higher, lower, whatever you need. Actually, it's a it's a comfortable, great, great good. level. Yeah, okay. that sounds good. good. Oh, I was gonna uh, make sure. Um, is there is there a certain point you need to we need to end the conversation at all or? No, nope. we'll just end it when we both get so utterly boring that <laughs> no one in their right mind would ever want to listen to us. That's when we'll end. Oh. <laughs> This this is a genuine smile you put on my face, Alex. <laughs> that, that makes me really excited. I love I love the open ended. Just, really, you know. sixteen hours later, there they are, still talking. <laughs> Make them stop. Make them stop. It'll it'll be like a a multi movement. We'll have to break it up into a multi movement work when it gets released. That's right. You know. <laughs>
<laughs> Listen, I get mileage out of, out of uh, you know, flogging those um, separate movements separately. I mean, that's I've done that now with two symphonies, two my two wind symphonies, wind and percussion symphonies, mm-hmm. and I think it works really well. You know, just break them up into, um, you know, if if it's artistically what you're going for. I mean, it it doesn't work with everything, but if you happen to be writing in a way where each movement can stand alone. Why not do that? And then it gives people the opportunity. If they don't have 30 minutes to program a big piece, they have six minutes to program, you know, one movement or something. And um, it gets a lot, it gets the music out there really well. So that's, that's really clever. And Dickens, remember, you know, Dickens was writing serially. He was releasing what a chapter a week, something like that a month. I forget the the frequency, Um, but, but he was doing that for, for a long time with his books. I love that. Makes what, sense. Keep, I, what, them, keep them on the hook. Make them want to know what happens next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're you're kind of just uh, like putting putting a little bit out at a time and and uh, a little bit of a teaser, right? Exactly. What, what at what point did you start realizing or start doing that? Where it's like, well, why not, you know, let's just here take the movement. Just use the movement. Yeah, it was actually. I think the first time I did it was with a fairly early one of my earliest piano pieces, concert piano pieces. Um, it's a suite that has five short movements called, uh, what's it called? <laughs> Piano Suite Number 1, The Resonance of Childhood. Ooh, dark, beauty, <laughs> childhood, not happy. Um, uh, so it was five movements. And then it dawned on me, it happened kind of in reverse. I didn't decide to put them put the movements out there separately. However, I got contacted by a pianist who particularly loved the fourth movement, which is called For My Father. And then interestingly, other pianists also wanted that particular movement. They said they liked the whole thing, but they didn't have time for the whole suite, which was, I don't know, 12, 17 minutes, somewhere in there, I don't know. But they loved that one movement, which is by far the, the most moving and, and best movement, I think. And they and they and one of them recorded it, a uh, German pianist recorded it, uh, Suzanne Kessel is her name, terrific pianist, who's recorded a few of my things now. And uh, then other people started playing playing it, and then it dawned on me, duh, I should actually publish it as a, because it's on my own publisher, to publish it as a standalone movement. And then that happened soon after with an, another a chamber piece of mine called Evensong Suite, which I think is six movements, and same thing happened. Uh, somehow the second, I think it's the second, of those short movements kind of caught on with some people. And next thing you know, people are asking for separate movements. And so I think I, it just, I backed into it and I realized, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. So ever since then, when I do multi-movement pieces, and I love that format, I think that if anybody, my attitude is if anybody wants to perform the separate movements without the context of the whole piece, go for it. You know, I, I'm writing in such a way, I hope that each movement, you know, will have meaning, <laughs> maybe at least to somebody. So, um, so yeah, it works. I, I recommend it to a lot of my peers. I always say, hey, think in these terms, because it'll get you many, many more performances of that music. And it's all, each movement is sort of advertising, if you will, for the whole piece. So, you know, that happened a lot with Immersion, the first of the wind and percussion symphonies where, you know, I, the movements stand alone and a lot, a lot of times, especially the first and the third movement, depth and beneath, they get programmed a lot by themselves. And then people learn about the whole piece. It's like, oh, wow, we could do this whole thing. So, yeah. It's interesting. It makes me think about, um, I think usually it's only either classical musicians or or uh, enthusiasts of classical music who who think about listening to it an entire piece from first movement to the last whereas often like people like you know if they if you say 
the Moonlight Sonata, they'll just think of that one movement, right? That's right. And you know what else? Um, streaming services, Spotify or Pandora, or even you know anybody's iTunes list, they they mix up the movements and the pieces. You know, it's track by track by track, right? They rarely keep things together. They rarely keep things in this in the right order. You have to be here's a little helpful hint from Heloise here for any composers listening or producers. You know, just always make sure in your metadata and in your titles of multi movement things, put the number one, two, three, whatever. You know, if you want them in any semblance of order, people have to know and see in what order they're supposed to be in otherwise they'll have no clue and they'll play them in any order but the thing is so many people uh listen on shuffle or don't pay attention right to movements that you become the victim of the digital world and that's how people are listening these days so i had i think that also played into my thinking you know 20 years ago about this when streaming was not you know a thing the way it is now but it certainly it really um, made me think that, wow, people are listening to this stuff in any random order. I'm it, I, For self-preservation as an artist, it would be good if my pieces actually sound good in any order. <laughs> the other thing is production, <laughs> that you have to really think that because your piece, your chamber work or your solo piano work or your solo oboe piece or your orchestral work, are going to be played right next to, you know, uh, Billie Eilish or Lizzo or anybody else. You want your production values to be pretty solid too. You want them to the mix, the mixing and the mastering, especially the mastering, should really sound great. Another helpful hint, <laughs> because these days, you know, everybody's just on shuffle all the time. They're listening to everything, which is great. I mean, that's how it should be. That that and also, um, most people are listening on their cell phones, or if they have earbuds, oh, and they yeah, might be using exactly. earbuds, right? Yeah, um, earbuds, and that that's kind of a sad thing. I mean, now I'm I'm speaking as an engineer, uh, as much as a composer, that I have to say, it's really sad. They end up mixing to kind of the lowest common denominator because basically, when you know that you're that at best someone's going to listen on their you know decent desktop speakers. Um, and most of the time, as you're saying, Adam, you know, they're going to be listening on their earbuds or whatever, which are usually crap earbuds, not great ones. Um, or they're listening straight through their God awful, you know, computer speaker or, or cell, cell, you know, cell speaker. We have to take that into account as the reality for how people are going to hear stuff. And so that means making sure things aren't too boomy, aren't too, wah, 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 you know, pitchy and, and, and uh, abrasive in the high end. Uh, all these things that really are the opposite of what you're ideally going for with depth of sound in a recording studio setting. It's It's been challenging. And, you know, frankly, to, to riff on that, the minute I got into, uh, started doing electroacoustic pieces for that are often played in schools, right? Uh, these band, wind band pieces, I had to start taking that into account too, because as you can imagine, every auditorium, is wildly different. Rarely do they have a, a really good PA system, you know, in these in these places. And sometimes you're you're ending up in the gymnasium. I mean, I've had plenty of performances where the band is performing in a gymnasium. God, you know, can you imagine that that sonic hell that a gymnasium is? <laughs> but you do your best, right? And you just figure, I'm just my attitude is I'm just happy they're playing the damn music. I think right. that's awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the fact that it's going to sound less than ideal and less than I would have ideally wanted it to sound over the speakers. I that's I'm not in control of that, right? So all I can do as the engineer and and also with my wonderful uh, mixing and mastering engineer John Rosenberg, who's been my partner in crime on a lot of these tracks for the past uh, year and a half now. All we can do is say, okay, this sounds really solid. 
And I, if I hear something that's going to be a, a little too high, let's say on the high end, I know that's going to be screeching, you know, in another venue. Or if I hear something that's really boomy, uh, a little too low mid-range, I'd call it, you know, I, I, I point that out and I say, you know what, that's going to howl to the ears of the audience in the wrong venue. So let's just dial that back a little bit, you know. Um, you have to make concessions. I think. I mean, not every artist is going to agree with me at all, and that is totally fine. I make concessions because I really want to get the music out there and get people enjoying it, whether they're playing it or hearing it. I totally respect any other artist that says, I will not make any concessions, I will not compromise, it has to be a certain way and this is the only way I want it, otherwise they shouldn't play it. I totally get that, you know. It goes, it goes both ways. It's just, you know, your personal preference. <laughs> There's no right or wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's so funny to hear you say that because I, I recently had a, a piece performed that was for a saxophone duo, the Baya Duo, mm -hmm. who are a fantastic group. And uh, yeah. the premiere was happening in a museum. So, oh boy, really boomy. Yeah, so <laughs> really reverby, hard surfaces. Oh, exactly. So, I, yeah. I specifically wrote the piece designed with that environment in mind. And it's funny because everything you're saying now, it's yeah. like that piece won't work as well in uh, in like an outdoor performance or something. Like if it was played in a park, but but inside like, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know, like a gymnasium, like you said, it would work quite well. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really smart, site-specific music. I mean, know what you're doing. And maybe maybe it's possible to do another version that has um, adjustments for an indoor venue mm. or a venue with a lot of carpeting, you know? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> that That's but. something... Uh, you, you seem like a really, like, adaptable sort of uh, professional. Like, like, the things that you were explaining about, like, oh, well... Uh, the you know they can't play the whole piece just take the movement you know and then and then it's like oh well in these environments the gym it might bring this out so like let's maybe lower that a little bit and yeah I go with the flow yeah <laughs> I, I, I am uh, I the best uh, co uh, let's see compliment I got recently was uh, somebody told me that I was the least neurotic musician or composer they knew <laughs> and I thought score all right yeah they they, they thought I was pretty affable and easy to deal with and I thought well that's that's good we're going for that here at Shapiro Industries <laughs> you know I think that's a great compliment because that that's uh it's it's a thing for sure it's a thing, you know, and again, you know, I totally respect every artist and we're all wildly different and we have our, every one of us has our isms, right? I mean, God, we're all a mess, but we're, we're all a mess in different, unique ways. <laughs> that keeps yeah. it interesting. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's so much of us that's, that's great. And then there's, there's some portions of us that's like, all right, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> and you'll never know the answer. Yeah. It's like all the bonehead maneuvers throughout our lives. They just never stop. They just, we just collect them. And you, and you kind of look at them as a little collection on your shelf of life. And you say, ah, look at that one. No, look at that one. Oh, wait, but there's several more right up there. You know, yeah. it's like, it's just an endless parade of bonehead maneuvers. <laughs> or you keep saying the same one. It's like, I have a lot of this one. That's like something needs That's to right. change. Right. Yeah. Like, what's the constant here? Oh, me. I'm the constant. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. With I'm curious. So, with the uh, um, you mentioned having your music with the electroacoustic and in like a gymnasium and stuff. Oh, 
when you started realizing that, did you then write music that would um, like the, like the same like one single piece that could be used in multiple settings? Like like how you just mentioned like with my yeah. piece, if I were to do another version where it could be used like that, or yeah, I haven't done that. Um, I basically it's just been more. I write for these less than perfect auditoriums. I would say you know kind of your. It's always a joy, and I had this experience recently when you happen to be in a pro venue with a great sound system. That is great, and of course the mixes that I do sound terrific there. They sound really good, but you just have to dial your expectations down for what they're going to sound like in an auditorium, and just know that at least your balances are right. Uh, in terms of the gymnasium thing, since that's not, it doesn't happen that often. It just happens, you know, uh, from time to time. I don't do any anything special to accommodate that or anticipate it. I just figure the only thing special I do is don't be neurotic. I really just try to not worry about it too much. It's like, okay, this is what it is. I mean, some of those performances on, are on YouTube and it's like, wow, I, it's amazing anybody to even hear anything, you know, it's bouncing around like a basketball, that sound, you know, and uh, you know, just don't worry about it. Uh, but I have not adapted or written two versions or even one version for site specific stuff. I don't think, I don't think I have. Mm. No. But I would. I mean, you know, if somebody said, well, oh, wait, there is one thing I did. Yes, <laughs> I just forgot. And I didn't I, I didn't do the final mix on it. And you'll know why in a second. Uh, the, one of the coolest gigs I got uh, a few years ago was from uh, Mark Speed, who's the director of bands at Clemson University. Clemson has a kick butt football team and uh, that has won uh, a couple of national championships in the past few years. And uh, they have an amazing 84,000 seat stadium. And mm. on either end of this ginormous stadium, they have a big like 65 foot jumbotron video, you know, like you see, you know, on ESPN and all that. And Mark called me up and he said, you know what, um, it's time for us. We need some music to uh, to go along with a video that we're going to cut to the music for the jumbo Jumbotron to accompany the 300 marching band musicians as they trot out to the field for halftime or whenever they're going to be playing. And uh, just it needs to be like a minute and 14 seconds, something like that. And he, and I can give you the beats, you know, what, what it needs to be. And would you do the music? Because Mark knew he'd, he'd perform some of my um, uh, wind band, electroacoustic wind band pieces, but he also knew that I had uh, you know, a lot of years clocked in the commercial music world before I became a concert music composer. So I seemed like an obvious choice. And boy, was I thrilled because I'm such a geek. I know nothing about football. I thought, oh my God, I get to do something for the cool kids. You know, this is awesome. <laughs> and so I said, you know, resoundingly, yes, I would love to do this. And it basically was like doing a little ESPN style spot. You know, um, it's short. I, you know, I got the timings from them, the steps basically, like they're going to do 15 steps and then they're going to turn right or whatever the thing was at the time. And it was a certain tempo. And so I was happy to do it. So what I did, two things I did, because um, obviously here in my studio, I can't imagine what the mix would need to be for an 84,000 seat stadium. There's just no way. So um, uh, I, I wrote it here. I collaborated with the, with um, one of their faculty members, Hamilton Alstadt, is a terrific um, electric guitarist. And I needed a, a soaring, screaming lead line, you know, and I wrote that and sent it sent the music over to him. He'd record it for me, send it back. We'd go back and forth a few times until it was just where I wanted it, you know, as if we were, you know, in the same room together. And uh, so I laid that in and then I sent him and their recording team all of my, what are called stems in the business, all the separate tracks. 
And I said, and, and, and a reference mix of what I did in the studio so they'd know what I'm going for. And I sent them the stuff and they did the mix on their end because they had to be standing in the field, you know, to really get, oh, okay, these drums need to be uh, bolstered here or, you know, this this electronic drum sound, whatever, chuck, chuck, you know, uh, this needs to be there, that needs to be there. It was great. It was so collaborative and I was so grateful. And the end result was fun as hell. Um, and they're still using it all these years later. And I always like to joke that um, it was the year I did this. And then I think the year after or the year or two years after that they won the national championship. And I say, it's all because of my music. Of yeah. It's all me. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I had so much fun doing that. It was really fun. It's That's on my a, website. It's like if you scroll down on the on the front page. You can I see. think I saw there's a video, right? And they're like in... Uh, Orange jerseys or brown yes, jerseys. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They yeah. what they do is every year they have their video students, the video videographer students, I think, make a new video for the jumbotron and they cut it to the music that I provided. So, um, so I was. It's interesting because you know, as every composer knows, usually when you're scoring a gig, you're you're scoring to picture and you're scoring to what the director has done. In this case, it was one of the rare times when you get to do the music and not and you know, and then they score to and they cut to you. Uh, which is every composer's dream, more so with drama than with something like this. But you know, I think it's every composer's dream that I'm going to write the score and then they will make their movie around it. Aha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that romantic, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is an amazing gig. It was really fun. And I love that they're still using it. As a matter, of fact, I, we just we it's a you know a licensing deal. So I was just in touch with them because August is the renewal, and um, and I said to him, you know, hey, you know, if you if you don't want to renew, that's fine. He said, no, we really want it. And I said, if you want something new, just let me know anytime because it's been like five years, six years, whatever it's been. And I said, anytime you want something new, because <laughs> I I would do this again in a heartbeat. It was really fun. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's like. Uh... What, what an interesting project too that you got to you got to work with the guy on the electric guitar. Oh yeah, that was great. I mean, he was wonderful. He is. He's, he's still with us. <laughs> Don't want to speak of him in the past tense. <laughs> well, he was wonderful on the recording. He's he wonderful. He's t he sounds great on the recording. He yeah. He, yeah. he gave me just just what it needed, and um, it's I came across oh a couple of years ago. I stumbled across on YouTube. Um, somebody, some person in a fan in the stands had filmed the. Um, uh, the musicians coming onto the stage. And so through their eyes up in the bleachers, I got to hear and see the whole thing and got to see, you know, the Jumbotron, some of it as they cut to and from it and, and the musicians on the field. And Mark has been saying for years that he wants to get me out there to bring me out onto the field and introduce me, <laughs> which would be hilarious to hear all those cheers. That would be really fun. Or booze, perhaps. I don't know. Oh, but, no. Uh, <laughs> But it's. Uh, I, I look forward to it. It's. It, it just hasn't happened because when we were traveling, I was never in that part of the universe. I was never in that part of the country. The closest I was was Nashville, which is not close. Um, so every year I go to Nashville for one of our ASCAP board meetings. But other than that, I'm not down there. Yeah, I was wondering if you had a chance to experience it amongst all like the eighty thousand fans. Yeah, That'd really, be... I will oh. at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I will definitely do that. Mark. Mark definitely wanted me to have that experience. He said it's so cool. You know, I can only imagine the closest I came to being on a field. Well, not closest. I was on a field once years ago, 
Uh, one of the wonderful band directors uh, with whom I've, I've worked in for years, collaborated, he's commissioned uh, things, Jerry Lucart from University of Minnesota. And uh, and one time I was there in, um, it must have been when he, Jerry premiered Immersion, the, the first symphony I, I mentioned. And uh, I think I was there for rehearsals or maybe it was, no, it must have been rehearsals because because um, I remember it was October or September or October. It was early. I was there for something or maybe to speak. I don't know what I was doing, but it was really cold. It was unusually cold even for there. And it was like in the 20s. And I had brought, you know, kind of a light spring leather jacket and a car coat, nothing, nothing parka like. And Jerry said after whatever we did a rehearsal or whatever we were doing, he said, you want to, you know, the marching band is about to start rehearsing. Do you want to check that out? And I lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, oh my gosh, I'd love that. You know, because I've never, my school, we didn't have any of this. We didn't have a band. We didn't have anything when I was growing up in uh, in New York, New York City, none of this. So this was all new to me. And so I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember first, I remember him taking me out onto the field and I looked up and there's the big M, you know, kind of painted on the chairs in the in the stadium. And I'm looking around and it's a huge stadium and, and it was fairly new at the time, it's their new one. And I just thought, wow, this is like the way someone feels when they go to Carnegie Hall for the first time, that they've only seen it on TV. I felt that way about this stadium. It's like, wow, I've only seen something like this on TV before. I'm in this big stadium. And <laughs> then they started, the musicians were kind of warming up and stretching, whatever. It was freezing. It was like 28 degrees or something. And of course, some of them, including, you know, I think one of the sousaphone players was shirtless, right? I mean, these they're just young and brave. And, um, and as one of the sousaphone players, you know, came by, Jerry stopped him and he said hey first can I borrow your your instrument for a second and he said of course and so Jerry proceeds to lift up this 45 pound instrument and put it on my 120 pound frame <laughs> and that gave me an enormous respect for every player out there who is not only playing presumably pretty well with really cold fingers but also dancing and stepping and doing all the things they have to do to you know make make the whole uh, presentation, the art form, work. The marching arts are amazing, and to what and to and to ha suddenly have this huge instrument on me, uh, and how heavy it was, and I ca already I was trying to figure out how does anybody play with cold fingers, you know. It gave me an affinity, something I always talk about, you know, that you want to connect people uh, with something. The best way to do it is to literally immerse them in something, right? And I had that immersive experience on the field with a sousaphone. <laughs> that sounds like it. I mean, oh my God. Yeah, with marching, it's like, it's like, all right, you have to do these steps. You have to twirl around in this yeah. temperature and play in tune, by the way. Right. It, unbelievable. It's a mystery to me because they sound great. I mean, these bands, a lot of the bands really sound sound wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fairly monophonic. Obviously, it's a different uh, kind of music that you write. I have yet to be commissioned to write a, uh, a piece for the marching arts, but I'm fascinated by it. And I and I listen, and I know some people who do amazing work in that field. And I really like watching, was it DCI and, you know, all that stuff. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's all a mystery to me. But... It's an absolute mystery to me. No, have you done I, that stuff? No, I haven't. No, um, I went to grad school at, at in Bowling Green, Ohio. Yeah, and um, there's a marching band there, and I remember hearing them practicing and stuff. And I would watch them because they practiced right next to the music building in this in this open field and stuff like that. Um, and it's just it, it always kind of blew my mind, honestly. Like I'm I'm a classical guitarist, 
And so like not a whole lot of classical guitar and marching band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but wait, there's a there's a there's an opportunity there. There is an opportunity. You Oof. need to you need to nail this. Come on. <laughs> you need to introduce classical guitar and maybe recorder, you know, baroque recorder. Oh my arts. goodness. That would be so awesome. This is um this is like a multi uh uh generational like musical multi- uh, what what's the word I'm trying to say? like multi-century like sort of uh <laughs> you know a little bit of uh the baroque and then the 21st century marching maybe, bands maybe there were marching bands with lutes and recorders back in <laughs> you know the 17th century or something we just we just don't have any records of them yet um somebody needs to dig that up there's this whole subset of, of baroque music that was for marching arts that we had no idea about <laughs> i hope so I hope so. The jousting was taking place, you know, and the, there probably is a long history of this. I know nothing. I am not a scholar. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know much about that either. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like in a jousting a jousting competition and the people on whatever horn they're playing riding right. along on the horse and like exactly they got that stuff going on on the horses and i know that they parade around but i don't know if they were ever like marching the way we do you know uh, choreographed marches mm. um, but that would be very funny it could almost almost be a great monty python kind of ske- sketch you know <laughs> i could just imagine it, it That's would be really true. quiet because think how quiet the instruments were i mean <laughs> recorder and lute and guitar and maybe a little drum with a you know an animal head head skin you know an animal skin head um, it would be really, um, really quiet. <laughs> I think I think you'd get a lot of uh, a lot of booze and a lot of people throwing tomatoes. Yeah. Right. They're, they're like, what is this? You're, you're just holding something on a horse. That's right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear what you're doing. I hear the, the stomps of the horse. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Use the horses as the percussion section. They'll come up with That's... something really, really amazing. You know, very, very good. Uh, you know, horse percussion improv. Yeah. 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 I think I feel like that would be a thing. I feel like someone may have someone has to have done something like that with galloping. I would think so. It's such a great rhythm. I know. um, What's his name? Michael. Michael. What's his name? It's it's slipping my mind. He teaches at, um, I think, Cal Arts. Um, Oh, goodness. I can't remember his name, but he he wrote a piece for the International Contemporary Ensemble. And um, I think it was like a a choir or something and they had like dry rice and they were holding these pieces of paper at an angle and just dribbling the rice onto the paper like raindrops and it was like gradually like falling and and, you know and so um that's something i had never seen before but i thought it was it was a really great sort of uh effect you know with the that ambient sound that's right that's beautiful sound i like that Hold on one second. I'm going to let my cat out. Oh, sure. I had closed the door here. <laughs> You're locking them in there. Yeah. Come here, kitty. Out you go. Here you go. Alex, I don't know if uh, if you if you are imbibing at all. I have a glass of uh, Johnny Walker here. Ah. Cheers. Cheers. And the Macallan. Yeah. I think we have the same glass. I know. Look at that. We is do. It... These are the Waterfords. Is yours a Waterford? I don't know. Actually, I they really don't really know. They look really similar. It is similar. Look, I, have, I love these little, I think they're six ounce. I have really small hands. Yeah. And I love these small, uh, I have a set of six, and each one has a different uh, pattern, classic pattern from Waterford. These crystal glasses are so nice to have your nip in, you know? Yeah. They're very elegant. 
Well, cheers. Hey, cheers, yeah. Ah, this is exciting. You are the second person to be on the podcast who's uh, enjoyed a glass of alcohol with me. Only the second? Only the second. I thought musicians were a bunch of sots. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. <laughs> yeah, no, um... Alan Tyson. Do you know Alan Tyson? We know each other and I think like each other via Facebook. I don't think we've met in person yet. Okay. Uh, but I think he's terrific. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's yeah. just fantastic. I would love to meet him in person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually have only met him in person once. And uh, uh, that was a bunch of years ago. But but he was he was the first and only person up until you tonight. Well, <laughs> you know what this means. You're going to have to have me and Alan on together that and we'll have a party and maybe somebody else <laughs> and just make it you know a cocktail party i think we should do that yeah we can have uh and, and megan enan yes now Ma megan and i did something together we did a podcast together last year and she was maybe it was the year before it was actually before the pandemic it was dennis tabensky's um uh, podcast and she was just great mm -hmm. and we were having kind of a business of music conversation as i recall we were talking about consortiums and you know business of music kind of thing and she's terrific. She's just great. And they're both so, she and Ellen are both so talented. I mean, they just are wonderful. Oh, they're so, fantastic. And yeah. Fun. So much and fun. fun. It's, it's funny because um, Alan is also the only other person, I think, I think, no, it's not true. He's not the only other person, but he's another person who uh, we had an open ended conversation <laughs> where there was no deadline, you know? <laughs> I think those are the best, you know, as opposed to having hard outs and just, you know, having to wrap up because sometimes you're just getting into something really interesting when you have to kind of call it, call it quits. But yeah, but, uh, yeah, I having I'm 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 working hard on a bunch of things. But fortunately, right now, this week or this month, it's been on my deadline schedule and not on external deadline schedules. And there's a difference because it means you can say, oh, I'm going to, as I did last night, I'm going to go kayaking for a couple of hours. I'm, you know, I'm going to put my work away. Or today I had lunch with a friend, um, which is unusual for me. I don't usually get, you know, take the day off, but it was really lovely. And um, to be able to call the shots and just say this task that I'm trying to get done by the weekend, it will get done. <laughs> I can right. just choose which hours I'm going to do it, you know, so this uh this talk with you is in that category of oh i want to do this this will be fun and enjoyable and relaxing i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say i have to skedaddle you know after a certain period of time oh i'm so i'm so glad that this coincided with that so you went to bowling green state university right for your for your masters mm. i've been there once and i know what a great great music program they have uh there and were you how long were you in ohio for I lived in Ohio for four years, but yeah. I was I was in the program for two years, yeah. um, from 2016 until uh, 2020. Great. Actually, 2020 is when I moved. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you just moved. Yeah. Yeah, my girlfriend and I moved in August uh, here to Chicago, um, and so we actually. Oh my God! I think today is exactly a year. Ooh, cheers to you! Cheers. Yay! Yeah. Wow! Happy, happy Chicago anniversary! Yeah, thank you so much. That's great, and you're in a great place. Yeah, it's oh man, there yeah, are so I, many amazing things going on in Chicago. Oh my gosh, in every direction, and so many terrific people there. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm slowly learning and uh, slowly learning the the things and meeting the people. Yeah bit by bit and obviously with the pandemic and stuff it was you know yeah 
it, it, it slowed that down a lot. But um, but yeah, I mean, I went to um, uh, an, an outdoor classical music festival. Like it was it was a block party basically. Like they closed down a strip, um, and there was a couple of restaurants on that strip, and they had uh, tents outside for vendors with like there was one person who was selling hot sauce and another person with like jewelry. And then on the far end was where the classical music performances were happening. And it was all, you know, um, mainly actually it was like contemporary music. A lot of it all, you know, living composers and uh, uh, fantastic performances, but I've never experienced a classical music uh, like block party festival thing before, you know, have have you ever seen something like that? I haven't. I mean, you know, other than like, a, a more traditional outdoor concert that has new music, but that is really great. And I bet a lot of people listening to it had never heard new music before, and and didn't realize how much they would like it because the, one of the, I think you know one of our big problems in our business is that there are people who don't know anything about what we do have a predisposition to not like it because of rumors they've heard about music from I don't know a hundred years ago that wasn't that listenable to their ears or whatever and they they we still haven't gotten past that um they don't they'll say that they don't like new music without having heard any new music so it's really great to have concerts in the context of everyday life because then everyday regular people who are not part of our new music tribe you know get to hear what we do mm. and real and discover it that joy of discovery they realize they like it you it's know? like we were saying before about in order to understand something you have to be immersed in it yeah exactly so i, I get very excited at the thought of you know of of having the general public have much more access to what we do by bringing what we do to them instead of expecting them to buy tickets to something where they're going to have to sit and be still and be quiet and you know get dressed up and find a babysitter and all that stuff i mean it's we we put, we put up an awful lot of roadblocks i think in our traditional society that's hanging on to vestiges of a past world that is not necessarily entirely relevant to the current one uh we put up a lot of roadblocks to people uh, coming in and enjoying what we do. And I, I felt for a long time, and many of our peers certainly feel this, you know, that we have to figure out ways to bring what we do to other people. And we we are the ones that have to show up where they are and stop expecting everybody to show up to us. Uh, and also, by the way, if they do show up to us, how about making it a little more comfortable for them, you know? Mm. All these old stodgy rules are kind of silly. Um, well I definitely think that you're one of those composers like undoubtedly you know with the work that you write and uh like especially with the the electronics i remember watching a video a few years ago of um i think it was on your website of a piece you wrote um using rocks with oh with, yeah rock music for young students yep yeah and i remember watching the video of it and there was like this light show and like they had like and it looked like a great time i was like yep yeah. Like what? What a great! If that was someone's first introduction to um, uh, a living composer's music, what a great introduction! Thank you, thank you. I'm Absolutely, visually and multimedia all the time. I mean, it's not always appropriate for every piece, but when it is appropriate for what you're doing, I'm always encouraging that people, you know, get get outside of the taco shell and really, you know, think creatively about how can they present music to make it more immersive. We're back to that word, you know, more immersive for audiences. 
Um, I, and I think that the sky's the limit. And I get really excited about new technology, um, you know, mixed mixed reality and stuff like that, that will further immerse people and further bring it to them. And in the next handful of years, we're going to see some really big changes and things that are going to become more and more the norm that we can do incredible creative things with uh, and really rope listeners in who had not experienced this stuff before, you know, mm. give it to them on many different levels. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic, actually. Um, even, even this whole thing with the depressing nature of quarantine and the pandemic and all the downside of it and the sadness of it uh, and anger really, you know, about how we got here and how it has continued. There is the upside, which is that, of course, you know, so many people are now using technology and they're connecting with each other in ways that, you know, eventually they would have, but maybe not this soon, even though this, a lot of this stuff has been around for a long time. I mean, I've been using Skype with ensembles for 10 years, literally, if not longer. So this is not new, but most people weren't using it. So I love the fact that people are now diving into what can they do in their own home environment? What can they do at their desk? What can they, how can they then broadcast what they do or upload it or whatever to the world and become collaborative and interactive with the world around them? That's very exciting. You know, if anybody, if anybody has a phone, much less a computer, they have access. They have access to so many tools with which to be creative and audiences, you know, that they can, that they can share their creativity with. I mean, it's very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with things, I mean, even on Instagram, all you have to do is just do some sort of hashtag and you can connect with people. Yeah. anywhere and everywhere that that might be have a hashtag or even use a hashtag that uh isn't even a part of it like like if it's a musical thing and you put like hashtag nikes you know like <laughs> <laughs> you might someone who likes nike might see that and be like oh this is kind of interesting you know? that's right no that's exactly how to reach a broader audience you know i have forever said that we have to stop just trying to reach our own people so to speak you know we have to go for you know, to, to somehow figure out how to collide with sports and how to collide with food and cooking and how to collide with, you know, science and aerospace and all geology, you know, anything, um, anything. It's all holistic. It's all, you know, continuous and, and interrelated. And I hate that so many people still view music or the arts in general, any kind of art, as being something that's separate and compartmentalized from the rest of what they do in their daily life. It's like, it's, oh, there's this concert. And then I've got the rest of my life, you know, it's, it shouldn't be like that. And in many other cultures, it's not. I think that we're really um, stultified here in the United States in terms of how we do compartmentalize things. It's not, I don't think it's like that in other, many other parts of the world. Uh, we are unfortunately stuck in this. So it, it, people like you and me and all our friends and peers are the ones that can help change that. It's, it's a lot like... Um separating like like you know your personal life and your professional life yeah and like there there is a, a separation in there but at the same time it's like they are both informed by the other and you know how how well you function in your personal life will impact your professional life and whatnot right. and, yeah and yeah like you're saying like the compartmentalization mm -hmm. of the two it like um yeah but there are some people i guess who want to have that separate like my work life is my work life. I don't want to bring that home with me. I'm sure a lot of uh, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on your profession. I mean, 
I think in the arts, it's all one big soup. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there is nothing about my personal life that doesn't inform the soup of my artistic output. I was thinking about a, lot, a lot about that actually yesterday in the kayak as I'm floating around on this very glassy water. It was an unusually calm day. It was about five, six, we were, about, we were on the water from five to seven, pretty much. So at the end of the day, and it, there was almost nobody out there. There were no, no boats. There was one stand-up paddler, maybe two, that went past us at one point. Uh, but there really, it, it was just us. And uh, it was kind of magical. And I um, was just staring out to this great expanse, this 360 expanse of open planet, you know, with no humans, no nothing. And I was realizing how incredibly healthy for my spirit and my brain this was because I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just totally in the moment until I actually realized I was in the moment. Until you have that moment when you realize, oh my gosh, I'm in the moment. (laughs) And then, of course, you're out of the moment because you're thinking about being in the moment. (laughs) But that was okay. That's, That's okay. It's allowed. But I had that great moment of realizing I have not been thinking about anything for half an hour. I have just been listening to the sound of my paddle hitting the water and the birds flying in front of me, and and the, there's a there was a harbor seal, you know, in the distance, and just totally there, and that informs and that level. I won't call it silence because nature is filled with sound, but that kind of calm totally informs my thinking musically, you know, in, in terms of and the the irregular rhythm of all of that. Nothing is ever. You know, I always say nature is not in 4-4, you know, nature, there's so much irregularity in everything that we do. And to bring that back with you, to have that absorbed in your, in your psyche and bring that back to you when you are in your studio, quote unquote, working, you know, um, it's all connected. So, yeah, I think we have it better than our, than attorneys and doctors, maybe. Because, um, I mean, can you imagine the horror right now of being a, a doctor in the COVID ward? Oh, my goodness. Or a nurse or an assistant or doing anything. And the horror of all of that. And then coming home and trying to have, you know, some semblance of a normal life. It's got to be just so difficult. My heart goes out to everybody working in that. Yeah. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it, my girlfriend's aunt is a, is a doctor and, uh, and her uncle as well. And um, yeah, some of the things that we hear about and stuff, and it's just, it's just, yeah. it's uh it's a whole other thing that if you're not, it, if you're not in it, you're, you don't, you're not going to see it and you're not going to know much about it really, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Except what you see on the news, which really doesn't give you the full picture, I think, right. or it doesn't give you the humanity of it and the depth of it. Um that's I, a good way of putting it, the humanity and the depth. So, I mean, what you get on the news are the headlines. And, of course, the news is doing its best to try to get people vaccinated and to try to, you know, I mean, the, the normal news, not the crazy wacko news, uh, which is doing the opposite. Uh, but the, you know, the major news outlets are doing what they can to try to spread the word about how serious this is and, and that it's so important to protect yourself and to protect your community. Um, but that's one level of it. That's kind of the headline level of it. But the, the humanness and the grief and the suffering, I don't think people really get until they're in it themselves, uh, which is way too late. So, I mean, this is, you're seeing this all the time in a dark subject. We don't have to talk about COVID, but you know, these, um, reports of people only when they're literally dying from it. And are they realizing that they needed the vaccine? Do they realize that they made the wrong choice? And it's just so deeply sad. I mean, forget about the anger that we have about the system that put all the misinformation in place. It's just so incredibly sad and unnecessary. 
yeah well it's it's a, a terrible spot to be in yeah. um and incredibly unfortunate i i feel like that 30 minutes of sitting in the water on your kayak where you were just just like homeostasis mm -hmm. what a what a that that what a great sort of uh like i don't know balance i guess to have and to get away from any anything really yeah yeah i like i um it's interesting hearing you talk about that because i <laughs> i live in the exact opposite environment that you do right <laughs> i'm in like a hustle and bustling city right. but i do the same thing i like when i i um when i'm walking to my car or like walking down the sidewalk or something i'll just kind of be listening like hearing the wind and then hearing like something off in the distance like tapping hearing a car peel out or whatever and like just kind of like you said this irregularity of sounds that just kind of come and go and like absolutely the, the music of your of the life of everything that surrounds you because you know i know you agree that everything around us is is potentially musical everything around us has pitch and sound and texture and rhythm and all kinds of things that if you choose to capture them, you can use them in all kinds of interesting ways, or you don't have to capture them at all. You just have to do exactly what you're describing, Adam, is you just be one with it and be aware of it. And as you're walking down the concrete sidewalk and you hear from all different aspects of the stereo field, behind you, to the side, in front of you, above you, you hear all this stuff and it's all distinct and they're all in different frequency ranges and they all have different textures and you and you can pretty much identify every one of those sounds as you hear it. Your brain is doing the work and it's a, it's, its own kind of a symphony yeah. or at least a chamber work, you know, let's call it a chamber piece where if you have five or six different sounds and they're all doing their own thing, that's, that's music right there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 such a like a, a a a beautiful perspective to have on all you know, just experiencing the day as you're even going for a walk. Exactly. I mean, there's so much around us to be fascinated by. Now, where you are, you can go out onto Lake Michigan. You can go, you know, a little outside the city, go kayaking, all that stuff. I mean, you've got some great nature stuff around you. I know. Um, I, but with your schedule, you may not have time to deal with it, <laughs> to do it and, you know, immerse yourself in that. But it is there because I, I have some friends who, you know, post pictures. They live in Chicago and they post pictures of stuff they're doing. And it looks pretty nice in well, some form, you know. Yeah, it, it's been a pretty good summer. Um, it's funny you say that, too, though, because my girlfriend and I were actually planning on doing like a weekend getaway this this weekend. Yeah. And we haven't decided what, what where that's going to be or what it's going to be. So, um, sort of like this conversation, it's like open-ended in a way. <laughs> <laughs> you just get in the car and drive. I think the only downside is unlike years ago where you could literally just get in the car and drive. And when it's time to find a place to hang your hat, you know, you could get, you could walk in and get something these days. I think no matter where you are, you have to have a reservation and it's so oh, hard yeah. to get reservations. The spontaneity of travel has changed meaning there is not as much of it, you know, these days. It's, it's, it's sad because spontaneity is so much of the fun of life, you know. Now, you can, even camping, I mean, there are only so many legitimate, you know, camp spots, campsites available because we love to car camp and camp and hike and all that. But um, even then, I remember one time a few years ago, we were in Glacier 
and we had wanted, we had not made reservations, and somehow, thinking how big the park is, surely we'd, it was August or whatever, surely we'd be able to find a, you know, a little campsite and pitch our tent. Nope, they were all out, and we were, we lucked out, we, just down the road a mile or two, we got this adorable cabin, um, but, you know, it was like a motel cabin kind of thing, it was really cute, like 1950s style, it was great. Oh, that's great. It was great, it was very lucky. But uh, we just couldn't believe, like, you don't even have a campsite. And that, and we found that in several camp places, that we ended up um, going to really beautiful places, but finding obscure places to actually camp um, that nobody was in. It was almost like, oh, gosh, nobody's here. Are we going to be axe murdered in the middle of the night, basically, that kind of thing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was really cool. Um, <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't watch any horror movies before that. Yeah, really. <laughs> Or if you did, I don't know, but uh, hopefully, you know. There were two campsites uh, in, uh, I guess we were in, uh, it was Montana or Idaho or Wyoming. It was the road trip from here to there. So it was the whole Northwest. And we, we and um, there were two sp- uh, places that were really beautiful, both Creekside and um, one kind of deserty and the other very more lush. And we were the only people there. Mm. And like, we kind of couldn't believe it because they were really beautiful spots, but we were the only people there, which immediately your mind does go to, okay, where are the skeletons? <laughs> where where are they keeping the last campers that were here? You know, it was the last thing they did. <laughs> you, you, you can't help but think that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's like, yeah, we, we very quickly go to that point, <laughs> especially in an unfamiliar place, even if it's like a, a house, you know? Yep. Like what, what, what ghosts are lurking in the closet right now? Really? <laughs> <laughs> my, my, um, my mom, I, I grew up in Northwestern New Jersey mm-hmm. and, uh, my mom in the, in the seventies, I think it was, was in the seventies, uh, after they filmed the movie Friday the 13th and, yeah. uh, after it was released and stuff, that camp that they filmed it at was in New Jersey, in Northwestern New Jersey. And my mom went to that camp like shortly after they made the movie. Um, you know, nothing happened or there wasn't any crazy experience or whatever, but like just that already is a, you know. It's a trigger. It's a trigger, yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, that movie was filmed here. It's a, it's a weird scenario to be in. Kind of cool one too, actually, but. Yeah, well, listen, in the Hamptons, after Jaws came out and, and uh, Amagansett, I think, is where they shot it, and, like, no one was going in the water. They were all terrified. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That that story, I think, is from an actual shark attack in New Jersey. Really? I think I think there was um, there's a type of shark that can uh, live in fresh water for a long time. And it flowed up a river in New Jersey and attacked someone in like the 60s or something. Up a like river? That. Yeah. A shark in a river? That's that sounds like snakes on a plane, you know? Yeah, shark. yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I, that, I think that sucks because when you're in a river, that's really the last thing you're <laughs> expecting. I mean, even if you're in a river in Florida, you're looking for a crocodile, but not a shark, not a shark. Yeah. But up in New Jersey, a shark in a river in Jersey. No, 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 no. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> Hard nope. <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be very wrong about that, but I, I in a river. Yeah, yeah. I don't. No way. That 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 never would have crossed my <laughs> I'm mind. Have to growing fact up. check this one. <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> the origin of the story. Yeah, yeah. North Northwestern Jersey is really pretty. I mean, you've got that's really beautiful there. Really nice. Yeah, it's a it's amazing. Um, 
like in that area you're you know where i grew up i was like 30 minutes from pennsylvania about an hour from new york city yeah. you know new york state was like 45 minutes north yeah you're in the middle of everything it's great yeah yeah access you you grew up in new york city yeah, I did. I grew up in Manhattan, and then I and I spent my summers in New England, you know, various summer camps. Uh -huh. And uh, I didn't leave uh, New York City till I was twenty-one, so I am a true New Yorker, New Yorker. And, <laughs> yeah. I, out, and I then I came out to LA and lived there twenty-four years before coming up here to the San Juan Islands. So I've triangulated. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Yeah, you've kind of done like like a the. The three corners in a way, yeah, right? The three corners, and they're all vastly different from each other, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah. But I go back to New York, and the 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 former New Yorker part of me kicks right in. You know, I can I can talk to cabbies like there's nobody's business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, these days, you know, you have to tell everybody where to go and where to, and how to get there and all that because they don't know the city. Uh, it's it's very different than when I was growing up. Yeah, you just have your phone, you pull it up on the map, and it tells you where to oh, go. Man. Yeah, exactly. Even if you even if you're not a New Yorker, you can tell them how to get there. Yep, and they're all using GPS too, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. At least they'll get you there. But th I'll tell you one thing that's changed: the subways are so much nicer now. They're so clean and unrecognizable as opposed to when I was growing up in the '70s. Oh my gosh, the subways were completely covered with graffiti, smelled like piss on the inside, and that was my daily commute for six years up to the Bronx uh, to go to school on a, from 86th Street to 100. 40, uh, 242nd Street. It's a long subway ride. And on the number one, that was a long way on a stinky, dirty subway. And it was it was just normal. I mean, you know, that's all you know. So you think that's fine, you know. But now I go I go on the subway and it's like, my God, it's way too clean. Where where am I? This doesn't look right. It's much nicer. Oh, my goodness. I could I could imagine the summertime that being a, uh, a, yeah. a rough experience. Yeah. Yeah. But efficient. I mean, the subways are efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you, you've like New York, LA and Washington now, right? Mm -hmm. What? So this is like, I feel like this is a backwards question, but living in the area you live in, what is it about the city that you might miss? I think the only thing about the city I miss, because, um, you know, I, I back when we were traveling back in pre-pandemic days, when we actually got on airplanes frequently, uh, I was in the city, you know, a few times a year, always for, you know, four or five days at a time or whatever, um, which was plenty for me. The only thing I miss is, no surprise, the culture, you know, being able to go to, you know, really high-end um, uh, theater, concerts, dance, all of that. I miss that. I miss the clubs because I love to club. I love to dance and all that. And, you know, these are things you're not going to find in the San Juan Islands. And that's fine because, of course, we have other things that you'll never find in the cities like, you know, whales and things like that. Um, so it's it's a very happy trade-off. I'm, I'm fine with it. But, yeah, when I, I – oh, and, and you know what else I miss? I miss Indian food. I really love Indian food. And we, we have a lot of restaurants in Friday Harbor, which is our town here on the island. But we do not have an Indian restaurant. I'm hoping that someday somebody will come in and start one. But I, I'm, I'm pretty funny because my friends know when I'm in New York, it's like the first thing I want to do is, is go to an Indian restaurant. Like <laughs> or maybe, you know, twice during my trip, at least or something. I just want Indian food because I miss it. We have a great sushi place here, so uh, which we didn't used to have initially, but now we do. And that's superb. And that's great. We've got Italian. We've got Thai. We've got other things, but we don't have Indian. So <laughs> that's something I miss. So I miss I miss live 
live entertainment of the highest caliber and Indian food. There you go. Yeah, those are two good ones. Yeah, that's very good up. ones. But you know, I do not miss the sirens and the fire engines and the noise and the you know people you know pouring out of bars at, in the middle of the night, you mm -hmm. know, screaming on the sidewalks, kind of thing, because sound travels up. Um, you know, so it's I don't miss any I don't miss any of that. Um, oh, the humanity. It's just teeming with humanity, these cities. Uh, I've become curmudgeonly. As, as personable and social and affable as I am, ultimately, I don't want to be around anybody. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> and that's when you get to go out on your kayak. Exactly. I'm yeah. going to post some video. If it came out, I'm going to post something on Facebook in the next day or two. And so people can, can experience that utter solitude. It's, uh, it's quite something. Oh, I look forward to seeing. You know, that. I think we all need to be with teeming humanity. You know, for short periods of time, at least. I mean, like I love going to conferences. You know, for a few days. I just got a blast of that uh, last month, and again, I'm hoping if COVID will allow us to all convene. You know, the Midwest Clinic. I'll be in Chicago. Maybe mm. I can say hi to you in person. That would be you fantastic. Know, the uh, Midwest Clinic is happening. We hope the 75th anniversary. And that's, you know, 20,000 people or something to send to that conference. Um, it's really great to be with large quantities of, you know, like-minded human beings for short periods of time. You get your blast of that. Some people can do it every day of the month. I, I can't. I mean, I think many of us, many musicians certainly have a limited span of what we can endure before we just want to crawl under a rock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, I don't want to see anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm very with you on that. Yeah. That that's one of the things actually. Um, when when the quarantine started, it was like for me, it wasn't too much of a transition because I'm already so used to just like retreating. Yeah. You know, and just exactly. and and like being in all right, I'm gonna be in the office here, write some music. I don't need to see anyone today or next week. <laughs> I think a lot of us were saying we've been training for this our whole lives, man. And I was like, this is not a hardship in that way, especially if you're lucky enough and not everybody, you know, was to have a, a nice apartment or a nice house or, you know, something that, that you enjoy being in. Then you really had it made because it was no different than your average Thursday. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, this is what we do. We do hold up a lot. That's how the work gets done. I felt, I feel really badly for people who have crap living circumstances because then you're stuck and it's not fun it's not yeah. nice and it's miserable and and then there's you know a few definitions of that one is not not having a good space to be in and the other is not having good people around you whether it's roommates or family or whatever bad situation is not working out for you suddenly you know you might be a little more stuck uh during times like this and that is not fun but um if you're lucky enough to have, you know, good relationship and good, good structure around you, good place, good physical place, then, um, yay, <laughs> that's a good thing. Oh yeah. That's a very good thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's especially as a creative person. Exactly. And it's we don't take any of that for granted. You know, when you have that, you, you're keenly, one is keenly aware of how fortunate they are. Mm. I mean, there's not a day I wake up when I don't like pinch myself and say, oh my gosh, I am so unbelievably fortunate. And how did I luck into this? You know? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I was having a conversation with my dad the other day and I was talking about like, I have like a Roth IRA that I contribute to. And I was talking, I like, it dawned on me that as a composer, 
I never actually ever have to retire. Yeah. Like Elliot Carter composed until he was 102. That's right. Yep. He kept accepting commissions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Optimism. And it worked. Yep. It's great. Um, it's true. Musicians, usually we die with our boots on, so to speak. Um, so that's a good thing. Yeah. It keeps us motivated. Most of all, it has to do with that self-generation of things, internal generation of things that interest you, that keeps you going. Because uh, I look at people who depend entirely on the outside world, the external world, for their interest or their entertainment or their whatever whatever's going to happen to them that day. And I don't think that's a very good place to be, ultimately, because at some point you're going to be failed by that. And uh, I, those of us who have these very complicated internal lives as artists, we're so lucky because we carry our world with us all the time. And you can, <laughs> we choose by our profession. As composers, we choose to be in a room by ourselves for ridiculously long lengths of time, right? That would be solitary confinement to other people. So we actually choose that kind of thing uh, voluntarily. And we're very well suited to it because there's a whole universe going on in here, right? That's private to us and very enjoyable or a, an enjoyable challenge. You know, like I think when you're writing, it's it's not always that it's always totally enjoyable, but it's this um, you're seeking something and you're you're on a hunt for the answer to some puzzle that has been set up in your brain musically or, or otherwise, if you're a different media in a different media and you're compelled to find the answer. You're just compelled to keep at it. And that's really great to have that, to be compelled by this self-generated internal muse that won't, <laughs> won't let you stop. <laughs> the, the never ending question in a way, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, this kind of makes me um, curious with this, like this discussion on like, um, having this sort of uh, external thing that could weigh you down being the pandemic and the quarantine and then like the need to create and like uh, the energy you need in order to do that, right? Creative energy. Have you noticed in yourself any sort of cycles of highs and lows and like, have you found ways? And if you have, like, have you found ways to sort of uh, navigate through that? Like, does that question make sense? I feel like I, I stumbled, I stumbled through that question as much as I'm. <laughs> try, try it again. Say, restate it. Restate the question, please. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so have you noticed at all for yourself that you have cycles of highs and lows, like feeling like there's a period, there's a two-week period where you just need to withdraw because you're not feeling great. And then, and then there's like a two-month period where you're like, I am so productive. This is, I am, you know, cruising along. Yeah, I definitely have noticed excuse me, uh, cycles beyond my control that, cause I'm usually always on deadline, always having to work, always, you know, you know, just trudge, trudging along happily because I, I do love what I do for a living, but, uh, there are definitely cycles where I seem to be in the zone for a while. And then for some reason, it's not, things aren't clicking as much, even if I'm writing, even if, even if the writing is going well, there's something feeling a little disconnected and I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden that goes away. And then I'm calm and happy and in the zone again maybe that's just human thing no matter what you do i mean maybe if i were a plumber it would be the same you know mm -hmm. that that's just the nature of being human that you have weeks that are 
you know, for whatever reason, everything's aligned just right. And then there are weeks when you're feeling a little off and you can't even describe why or how are you feeling off. You just know that you're not quite in the pocket, but it's hard to describe, you know, and define what what's going on and what's missing. But then it feels really good when everything's flowing. One thing I've noticed with Dan, my husband, is that um, who is a really talented woodworker and furniture builder and uh, cabinetry maker and home builder. He does many, many things and very fine cook also and beaker. And one thing I've noticed living with him, we've been together 10 years and we tend, I don't know how this is, but I've noticed that we both kind of get in and out of the zone at similar times. I don't know why that is. And I don't think we really affect each other because I think it's very personal to each of us what's going on in our respective work spot spaces, you know? But I have noticed that when I'm in the zone, he's also clicking in. And, and when he's clicking in, I'm also clicking in, you know? And then vice versa, when I'm a little out of sorts, uh, in terms of just not knowing quite what's going on with my day, like I have all this stuff to do, but I can't seem to focus very well and get started. You know, I feel like I'm not getting enough done in a particular day. He's had a day like that too. And or, or a week like that, you know, we'll, we'll both have a week like that. And I don't know what's in the water, <laughs> but it's kind of fun. It's nice to have company, I guess. Like right now, both he and I are in this very Zen productive zone. Like he's, he's been working on this really cool project and I've been working here and doing these mixes and having a really good time. And it's, it's interesting. I hope it lasts. You never, that's the other thing. You never know when the rug's going to get pulled out from under your zone, so to speak. And you're out of the zone. You're like, you're in the penalty box or something. <laughs> and then you just, hope, well, you just wait for it to come back, right? You just keep trudging along and doing your thing and it will come back. What we do is a faith-based business. I tell you, you just have to have faith. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, you have that's to have faith. It's going to come back. That's a good, that's a good way of putting it. It's true. <laughs> I, I love that uh you you too have like you know you're you're like on this cycle sort of together like it it's it almost sounds uh like empathetic yeah it does um I, I could use the metaphor of apparently when women room together they their periods lock in sync uh, right. which, which and i have seen that happen years ago i had a roommate and in fact our periods locked in sync i have no <laughs> idea how that happens or why uh, but it is a thing. So, so maybe Dan and I are having our periods at the same time. <laughs> it's our creative periods. That's all. <laughs> do you do you and your girlfriend have the same um, uh, flow together? Have you noticed that? Have you tracked that? I flow think... is perhaps a bad word to talk about <laughs> after period. <laughs> Wrong choice of words. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so funny because so many of these words cycle period right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's uh yeah see that th this is this is just where we are like it's <laughs> oh my goodness that's so funny um i i feel like i feel like to a degree yeah yeah and um because i know like i'm i'm pretty empathetic you know when, when she's feeling down like it can i can feel pretty down knowing that like oh like I don't want her to feel like that, and she's similar with me. Yeah. Um. But I think we both also can counterbalance that a little bit, where like if she's feeling down and I'm in the zone, um, then I I I try to maintain or keep up that sort of positive energy, so that there is some, 
you know? Yeah. And I know, and she does the same thing and too. And she can, she can feed off of that and it can bolster her. Yeah. Yeah. Is she in the arts too? Is she a musician or? Yeah. She plays the oboe. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. I, it's amazing. Cause I had no um, understanding or anything of the oboe prior to being with her. And, and now it's like, I, I know so much about it. I could listen you know to a lot oboe. about read making. Don't oh, you? My <laughs> Alex, the chair I'm sitting in right now has cane on it. So <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times I walk through our apartment and I, ah, and I get cane in my, you know, like yep. step on some, uh, Ouch. fresh. Yep. Yeah. So. I think, I think oboists spend more time making reads than they do playing the oboe. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I roomed with an oboist once in, um, uh, uh, many, many, many years ago, one summer when, when I was, uh, at Aspen, I think, at Aspen um, School of Music. And I remember watching a lot of read making going on. Yep. A lot more read making than sound. <laughs> I have so much more respect for them because of that. Like, Yeah, exactly. It's such a great craft too. Bassoonists, of course, as well. And uh, it's such an amazing craft to, to, to make the reads, to understand and to have enough on hand and to be so, and I'm really sympathetic as a composer to when you've got a bunch of reads and because of the humidity or whatever, none of them are working and, oh, this one's cracked or this one's whatever. And this one's honky and squeaky and, you know, all the dwarves. <laughs> yeah, all the dwarves. Yeah. It's uh, not... They're really, um, it's a challenge. It's a really big challenge. It's not like playing the piano where you put your hands down and it sounds pretty good. And then, you know, a few times a year you get it tuned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. That's very true. I I, I have a, a sort of similar experience playing classical guitar because you have to shape your nails. Right. And I hated doing that. Oh my God. And it would, it would be so frustrating because like making a read, right. if I shaved my nails in the wrong way or I did oh, too yeah. much, then it, screw it, up. it yeah. screws it all up. Like, and you have to wait for it to grow properly. It is. And do I don't, did you use artificial nails? I never did, but that's a smart move to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean, know why I never did that. Yeah. There's a, there's a guitarist. He's a world renowned guitarist, Jason Vio. And he uses a ping pong ball he cuts up for his thumbnail. Wow. He it's likes a, that curve. Yeah. Yeah. It's really clever. And he and he has amazing tone. Wow. Um, they make all kinds. I, I, I used to play a lot of guitar and they make a lot of um, picks. They're these. I have one here. Let me see. I can pull it up. These arc. Have you ever used these um, they're called Arctic picks? These things, they clip, they go on. I kind of liked them. They come in all different sizes. So they'll fit, you know, whatever finger you need. And you basically, let's see if you can see this. You basically put them on and they're in, if they hang on well enough, you can trim them, you cut them to size, whatever you need. And then uh, they're basically an artificial, um, you know, fingernail. It's kind of cool. So I had these in all different sizes for different fingers and different, and we cut them up. Uh, I think they're called Arctic picks. I don't know why Arctic. But did you never had those? I've never even seen that. <laughs> oh, wow. They're really cool. Look up Arctic. I think it's A-R-T-I-K, maybe. I'm not sure. It's been years since I bought them. I, you know, it's not the kind of thing you have to buy that often. Um, but I use them, especially for your thumbnail, of course. Um, but, but I do a lot of picking and uh, we're used to. And so that, there you go. <laughs> you just pull those right out of the desk there. It's amazing. I even knew where they were. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're really cool. They're great. That is something um, I would definitely, I would benefit from. I know I would, yeah. I'd, I'd definitely play classical a lot more. I, yeah. you know, pull, I would pull that instrument out and, and uh, um, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I had never seen that before. Yeah. Check them out. 
I mean, you, you have to get used to them because, you know, you, you get to get, get different sizes and figure out which size on which finger is going to work for you because you don't want it so tight that it's cutting off circulation and you don't want it so loose that when you're playing, it's going to fly off and usually right. into the sound hole, right? Uh, just where you want it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> now, we're, now we're making a, a, a banjo or something like. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's really cool though. I, I, one time I had seen a, a capo, I think it was called a spider capo. Have you ever heard of that? No. So it's a capo that, um, like, you know, a capo holds down all the strings at a specific fret, right? A spider capo is six individual little knobs that hold down. Oh, you different can, and, strings and different frets. Yeah, oh my gosh. I love this. You can, you can move one of the things out of the way. So then you have an open string oh. while, while like two others are fretted or something. Oh, I so want that. That is fantastic. Yeah. It's a wow. really, really cool thing. That's really cool. Instead of having to detune your, your guitar, you know, and do different tunings, you can just play around with the spider capo i'm gonna look that up that's incredible i've never heard of that yeah Maybe that's a really normal thing everybody knows about it i have never heard about it i i, I think wow. that uh i would love for you to have to write a piece for that that'd be cool uh, that would be amazing <laughs> that would be really amazing i do uh, alternate tunings a lot um and i i find that that really frees the brain a lot on guitar um instead of just going for the chords that you know you know that you tend to go for i don't play classical guitar though i only play uh you know rock and indie alt stuff and pop and all that um but uh you tend to gravitate toward the chords and the hand positions that you know so it's really helpful i think artistically to you know change it around and detune stuff use alternate tunings that's that's really clever because i know uh and with perfect reason too a lot of composers have trouble writing for guitar Oh yeah, it's it's a challenging instrument to write for. I mean, guitar, harp, piano for non-pianists. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are a few instruments that are hard. Organ, <laughs> those are probably the top four that are hard to write for. Well, piano being at the bottom of that list because most people can figure a piano out, but the others can be really challenging. Um, when I I haven't written much guitar music, but I did a, a transcription of a piece that was for harpsichord and violin. I did for flute and guitar, and it trans transcribed really well. I mean, it was it made sense artistically, but I really relied a lot on the guitarist. Even though I play guitar, I still relied on the guitarist to. I showed him you know what I was doing and asked him for his input uh, where he wanted something changed or the voicing of a chord changed or something like that. I found it to it, it always helps to work with the musician. Same thing when I wrote my first organ piece, pipe organ piece. I I sat down at the organ with the organist and she showed me kind of because it's one thing book learning right you know it's one thing to kind of intellectually know how these things work because of course as musicians we do know how every instrument works but that's not enough when you're really writing for something that's challenging you have to understand it idiomatically and you have to understand it technically and physically um so yeah sitting down with an organist is great sitting down with a harpist if you're writing for harp those are always the ones that tend to trip people up. The pedaling, people don't understand the mechanics and the limitations in terms of tempo and other changes you want harmonically, you know, with the pedals. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot that only experience with the with a good player is really going to teach you, I think. You know, we all study this stuff, but learning it in the book is abstract. That's true. That's so true. I mean, and and you're you're you definitely seem like one of those composers who's really collaborative and and i mean because like you said earlier with your um um your 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 skype rehearsals that you do 
yeah. with with bands and stuff like that. I mean, oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> how how did you come upon how did you come upon that? I think I started doing it uh, not long after I moved to San Juan Island because, of course, you know, it wasn't I didn't have any any bands near me. Right. To, and people. And that's when I started writing band music and it sort of fell. Uh, I started suggesting it to to uh, ensembles. Um, and what I realized very quickly, and it's still the case now, it was even worse back then when everybody had slower Internet speeds than they have now 10 years ago. Now here in my studio, I've got one gigabyte fiber optic cable going directly, literally from the from the port into my computer. I mean, it, it doesn't get f faster. It's unbelievably fast. But I didn't have that in other places I've lived on the island. And of course, other people in other parts of the world and didn't have that either. You know, we, we're getting faster every year, thank goodness. But so what I immediately learned, okay, listening to them rehearse is painful because it's just gobbledygook and it still is to this day you know it just doesn't translate very well but it's what is so viable and here we get back to the immersive theme of our conversation is what what is so valuable to the um, to the musicians especially students of any age whether they're university students or middle schoolers anything to have that contact with the person who put those little black dots on their music stands and to understand where the music came from, because, you know, I flip my webcam out and they see the world around me, or they see my studio, or I get to give them a studio tour and show them how everything was put together, all their tracks were made, you know, a quickie tour of how do these things work, um, getting to talk to us and see our sense of humor or our warmth or whatever. And we ask questions of them. And that kind of interaction is far beyond just what it is to hear your piece played back through really bad, you know, binary system that is going to garble it. Um, you can hear it. And I certainly did that plenty of times. But I learned it sometimes these days, if I really want to hear a rehearsal beforehand, I'll ask the um, uh, conductor to just stick their phone or somebody's phone up, you know, during a run through and send me the MP3. And then I can at least, you know, get a good sense. It won't be a great recording, but I can get a sense of what's going on with the band a little better than I can over Zoom. Well, back then it was Skype. But it's very valuable. And so I think I was a real early adopter of that. And I told every composer I knew, uh, you have to do this. It's really great. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference to do it. And it's an added income stream as well. Uh, so there's the, that side of it, too. But uh, most first and foremost, it's the connection you know, that we have with these people playing our work. You want them to connect with you as a person and without fail, the difference between how they would play through a piece at the beginning of the rehearsal before I talked to them and how they would play at the end, having just chatted with me, even if we didn't talk that much about the music was huge. And there's also that, what I call the, the strain, I don't know, there's an effect that when, when your own teacher, when your teacher tells you something, you kind of tune it out. But when somebody else from the outside tells them, you have to do this, you have to do that. Suddenly they listen, they hear it, and they absorb it, and they do it. And the teachers are very thankful. It's like, wow, I've been telling them all week to do this, but suddenly you say it, and suddenly they do it. Of course, yeah. nature, right? <laughs> so there's that aspect, too, of just the person from the outside coming in. And I think that they're on, they're, they bring their better A game to it, you know, when you're, when the composer's showing up. Uh, and if we're nice and, you know, we're not barking at them and criticizing them, it makes them want to play really, really well. I think it makes them want to do well for us. 
Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, that's the thing that I thought was so cool when I learned about that was because I've seen, you know, especially now, like people are certainly uh, rehearsing and, and having these like uh, collaborations over Zoom. Right. Um, but not with a large ensemble. I haven't heard anything like that. Yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. And actually, I've, I've enjoyed the Zoom stuff, the transition, you know, with the hybrid and online now only stuff, having a lot of people in the Zoom boxes and getting to talk to them and see them individually mm. and see where they are, see the backgrounds in their rooms, you know, where their natural habitats. I really like that. I call it digital intimacy. You know, being able to to see what people's lives are when their pets jump into their lap or whatever. You know, it's it's great. Um, I like that. And it's there is that is something I actually enjoyed with all these zooms, you know, and zoom for the end of time, the pandemic zooms. I, I found that that was actually more rewarding in some ways than talking to a whole group of students where I can barely see them, you know, they're just in a big room and I'm up on a screen uh, over there, right? Big screen, but it's not as close as everybody looking at their monitor up close and seeing each other the way you and I are seeing each other. So uh, there are, you know, there's a lot of upside to this technology. Um, and I think people realize that it's not all bad. It's how you use it, right? Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of connection and connectivity there. Something else I think too that might be make it a little bit more um, uh, like uh, palatable for people, I guess, yeah. is that being in that sort of like a Zoom lecture or um, you know presentation, whatever you want to say, uh, they're watching from their house or their room, which is a place of comfort. And right. so because of that, they might be more likely to uh, engage and ask questions yeah. or something as opposed to being in like an auditorium where it's like yeah. you're amongst all these people in this giant room and un unfamiliar, uncomfortable space. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. I mean, and even just down to clothes, I mean, you know, you can, you're, you're comfortable with what you're wearing. You can put your feet up on your desk. You can just be, you know, you can have your beverage. One thing you don't have in the band room is a beverage next to you. Now, I'm not suggesting band students should be drinking scotch, but <laughs> although it would improve some of the performances. However, being able to have water or whatever your drink of choice is, non-alcoholic beverage of choice, is is or something to munch on or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. You know, people should be comfortable. Oh. And I happen to love working from home, so that's you know, I this is set up for me, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm in mission control right here. So I've got everything I've got, you know, my whole credenza back there is, uh, you know, filled, filled with, uh, you know, goodies, everything from the, I don't know if you can see that. Hold on. The, there's an espresso machine and a kettle for water for tea. And there's all kinds of booze back there and, and all kinds of snacks. And, you know, it's basically, I believe in, I'm, I'm very hedonistic. I like to be surrounded by anything that's going to make me comfortable and feel feel good if, if my muses want chocolate they got it if they want <laughs> of red wine they've got it you know whatever they need i give it to them <laughs> oh that's amazing alex you are you are living uh my dream you are living my <laughs> anybody dream. can set their room up like this you know <laughs> that's so true i, I love that though it's so it's so great that you have uh you know yeah it's like what you need it's there yeah and what you need is, and, and everybody has different lists of what they need. It's not the same for everybody, but figure out what it is that makes you happy and feeling grounded and comfortable, you know, and make sure it's at hand. And it's, it's usually really cheap stuff. It's usually not anything fancy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's usually just like, oh, a bag of M&Ms. Thank you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday, uh, last night on the phone. We were talking about travel because she's about to go to Iceland on a, on a big trip. And we were talking, I having, I've just been on 10 planes in the past, in a three week period in July, I had two trips and now I have no trips until December, but I had two trips and they were the first ones I had taken since the pandemic started. So uh, it was like, whoa, this is all weird and new, but she was curious about the food and beverage situation. And I said to her, you know, when I travel, this has always been the case, even long before the pandemic, I am self-contained. I have my snacks and my beverages with me in my little tote because I only bring a 22-inch roll-on. I never check a bag. And I've got a tote uh, in, in addition. And I make sure that I, I, I can be warm. I've got a, a scarf, you know, that I can be warm in a pashmina. And I've got water and I've got mini bottles of booze and I've got nuts and granola bars and M&Ms. I said, that is my, and, and of course, my phone and my laptop, fr- frankly, and my chargers. That's it. That's really all I need to be happy. <laughs> I'm incredibly <laughs> self-contained. And so if the cart doesn't come by when I need it to come by, you know, if, I, if I'm needing something, I have it. I said, I highly recommend this mode of transport for you on a long flight. She's stopping in Boston. So she goes, you know, five hours to Boston and five hours to Reykjavik. And it's like, oh, man, you need to be self-contained because Lord only knows what they're doing these days with food and beverage and all that. And we laughed. I said, yeah. And then she said, what do you, what, what's your chocolate? I said, I bring M&Ms. I said, I don't ever buy them other than airports, but in the airport, I always go into that Hudson news or whatever the kiosk is. And I'm always buying M&Ms. <laughs> I don't care if they got nuts in them or if they're just the chocolate ones, but that is my happy place. It doesn't, I don't need a whole bag of them. I just a few at a time on, on my tongue, just once in a while, it makes me happy. Whatever you need to make you happy. If it's an M&M, you can have your M&M, you know? Uh, That's my motto. That's beautiful. (laughs) I I feel like um, you and my mom would be perfect travel buddies (laughs) because she, so her and um, our our neighbor, they travel a lot. They go on vacations a lot and stuff. Yeah. And my mom just has like a backpack, you know, and then our neighbor will have like suitcases and whatever. And she'll be like, oh, I forgot Q-tips. My mom's like, oh, here you go. You know, or like, yep. oh, I don't have this. Like, oh, my mom's like, here, there you go. That's me. <laughs> and it's all in a very small space. It's like incredibly efficiently packed, but you have everything you need. Yep. 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 Absolutely. It's it's That's- a great, it's a great thing to do. It's a great, like, um, well, especially as as a, a musician who's traveling and has all kinds of things to take, you know, um you don't have to lug along all this stuff that. Uh, it's not you know unnecessary items like you, if you're if you're going especially if you're going for something that's like a, a conference or you know um uh, a residency or you know for a short residency i guess like you're there for a specific reason right so so it almost necessitates just only bringing what you need just bring what you need and also know that if you're staying in a hotel and not camping you know it, the hotel has a hair dryer. It has. Oh, I just uh, a trick I learned recently because uh, I'm a terrible ironer and I, I I try to buy clothes that don't wrinkle at all. But once in a while, you end up with a jacket that has a bad crease in it. You know, you need to get that out. Well, every iron has a steamer in it, so you don't have to bring a little travel steamer or something. Just use the iron that's in your hotel room. Fill it with water. Boom, boom, boom. I just did that in Grand Rapids. It worked like a charm. It was great. It's like. Um, you know what I bring uh, for monitors? Here's another great tip. 
if you have to be working on the road, like if you're still, if you're copying out parts or doing something, you know, something on your computer that you have to do while you're in the hotel room, bring an HDMI cable with you, USB to HDMI, because guess what? Every hotel, if it's a halfway decent hotel, has an LED big screen TV. And it's usually pretty much pretty next to the desk and it usually swivels. So I connect my laptop to the big ass TV in the hotel room with a cable. All I, it weighs nothing. And I have the most awesome big monitor, second monitor connected to my computer when I'm working in a hotel room. Ta-da! Oh my God. <laughs> Is that useful or what? Bring That's an HDMI cable. All the so new clever. TVs have HDMI. Yep. That's true. And bring though. an adapter, you know, and if they don't just bring adapters or something that they take up no room in your bag, they don't weigh anything and you get a big payoff. Wow. I used yeah. to work in a hotel too. I, I, really? I, yeah, I, I know about those TVs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. That's a great tip. That's incredibly clever. How, how did you come upon that exactly? Like, I don't know. Common sense. I think I was, I was just dicking around with the TV, moving it uh, in some hotel room. And I looked behind and I saw the connections and the light bulb went on like, wait a minute, this is just like my big 32 inch monitor here, except it's even bigger. And um, I could use this. Aha. Next time I will bring a cable. And sure enough, it worked like a charm. I, I remember doing this. I had to, was at Midwest. I remember it was in Chicago. I, I remember the first time I really used this was a few years ago. And I was furiously copying, finishing writing something while I was doing the Midwest clinic. I was like a lot of work at the same time. And I uh, had this beautiful room at the Hilton, you know, on Michigan Avenue there overlooking the water. It was all great. And I did this trick of hooking up the cable to the TV and the TV was just perfect. It was like angled just perfectly. And my laptop was right here and I could see everything I was doing. And I, I think I took pictures and posted it on Facebook. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> That's a shining moment for sure. It yeah. was a shining moment of accomplishment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. So yeah, it was a few years ago. I figured this out, and now anytime I, if I have to work, I bring it, bring a cable. I, I'm, I'm definitely using that. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna go purchase a, another HDMI cable, and uh, yeah. specifically for travel, I have it in my backpack always. There you go. I, I, are you? How are you with um, composing in? Like, are you the type of composer who you have to be in complete sort of silence and isolated, or are you? Can you compose? And, and work amongst some sort of sounds, you know? I prefer silence. I know a lot of people who are kind of ADD love to work with a lot of uh, noise and silence around them because it gives the brain something to focus on, to tune it out. I, I'm fascinated by how that works. I'm not one of those people. I, I would not, I have had to work in a Starbucks and places like that, but it is not my preference at all. I have noise canceling uh, earbuds, of course. And so I put those puppies in and do my best. I mean, I've worked in many public places, like all of us have, you know, mm -hmm. there's no way around it. But left to my own druthers, a hotel room is much better. Or, you know, if you're at a university doing a lecture or something, you know, you find a classroom and just hole away in a, in a room there. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you work where you have to because deadlines are deadlines and they're unrelenting. But, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. You just have to be, and we're back to that adaptable thing that we started talking about. You have to be adaptable. I think to be an artist in the 21st century, you really, you have to know so many things and be wear so many hats and you have to go with the flow and be adaptable and just be, you know, flight of foot, fleet of foot. 
fleet of foot, whatever the term is, your feet have to go fast, like and your brain has to go fast, and you have to just adjust and adjust for your situation and make it work and and not bitch and moan about it either. Mm. <laughs> That's the other thing. You have to have a good attitude. Right, exactly. Right? right, a good attitude. And don't save your bitching and moaning for private. You know, we all bitch and moan, but you know, you don't have to do it publicly. And you don't have to take it out on anybody else. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's the thing about um like composing in general is is like the you know the um what am I trying to say? Like it's such a personal thing. Mm -hmm. And and there's even a vulnerability when you're when you're trying to sit there and, and like concoct this thing out from nothing yeah and so even like and i think that's what it is for me is like being in a public space like a starbucks or something and i'm like sitting there at a table it's it's like it's like being naked in a public place yeah right yeah yeah it, it makes me uncomfortable i like like you i've done it and I do it when I have to, but uh, I don't want to. <laughs> I, I'm totally with you on that. And as a matter of fact, when I write, I often move. I flail. <laughs> I move around. I move my arms and not in a way that a proper conductor would, but just more in an expressive dance kind of way because I'm feeling, you know, whatever I'm writing. And that looks downright, you know, like you should be put in an asylum if you do that in a Starbucks, Starbucks, right? I mean, there are certain things that just are not so cool to do in public, unfortunately. I mean, it's like I can wail around and flail in public, but it's better not to <laughs> for the good of society because we have this silent pact with society that we are all going to behave ourselves and stay in our lane, so to speak, physically uh. and not flail our arms in a Starbucks. So if you're, if that's how you really are most comfortable writing, um, you know, then you're, you're immediately limited right there. I mean, I don't flail all the time, but I like to feel, feel free to flail, you know, freedom of flail. Mm. And it's hard to have that in a public space. So we'll have to get I, that yeah. like a, on your wall, freedom to flail freedom in to your flail. office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if people walked into my studio in when I'm in the midst, Dan has done it. And he cracks up all the time um, it, because I flail and I also grunt. I I I would so I would like to think of it as singing the pitch, but I'm never really trying to sing the pitch. Like you know, when you have a complicated chord, a very thick chord, and you you need to notate something or work on something on the screen, but you don't want to lose that middle note. And so instead of like singing the note, you're going, eh, 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 you know, you just keep going, eh, right. While you get this. And so Dan comes in and he cracks up. He's listening. He go, eh, I sound like a dying <laughs> sheep. I mean, I sound so pathetic and I'm flailing and I'm going, eh, it's the most unattractive thing. And he laughs. And I realized, my God, if I did that in Starbucks, they would throw me out. It would be, uh, or, you know, you know, charge money for admission, you know, yeah. on as the circus act. But um, I, composing is not a social thing. It's something done best in private, really. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe with your cats around you. And my, my cats look at me, at me funny, I'm sure. But she's at it again. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, cat, cats have no room to speak because they make some wild sounds. They sure do. And they flail and they they chase it. They chase after shit that isn't there. I mean, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they have their own issues. Yeah. My, I had one cat that was uh, he was just such a dope and I loved him to death. And he would he would sit there like maybe like a foot in front of the wall just like with the wall right there and in front of his face. He was just like staring at it. And just stare at it. Yeah. Because he saw something that you couldn't see. Yeah. Yep. I know. 
they're they're the like um cats are an animal that like you can't know what they're thinking and it makes me laugh whenever I look at one because like, it's just, I don't know what's going on back there. And I just like put some story in my head, you know? Yep. And sometimes I'm thinking it could go in two directions. Either there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in there or there's absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. nothing is going on between those ears, just nothing. And we're giving them way too much credit. You know? Yeah. It yeah. could go either way. And that, they're probably thinking the same thing about us, except we, you know, we talk all the time, but um, they have no idea what we're saying. Is it birds or fish or both that almost like they have no thought whatsoever or something or? Oh, I wouldn't think that about birds. I not, don't think they have thought. Well, not, not thought, but like, um, what is it exactly? Like consciousness. Oh, goldfish. Aren't goldfish like just the, yeah, they, they're really, I, I, th- I think so. I don't know. I don't know. I I've don't always know. assumed everybody is sentient in one level or another, you know, that have some thought that's important to them. Uh-huh. It's usually basic stuff about food, shelter, and sex. I think yeah. that's pretty much the top three in whatever order, you know, that are important if you're an animal. That would be important to us as mammals, too, if we were in caves. Um, but protection is another one. Like, you don't want to get eaten by something. So there's that. The There's that. Uh, fourth thing. Four things. Uh, food, shelter, protection, sex, that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> of the basics. <laughs> yeah. How that's, to that's be the... a, a creature. You know, these are these are the four top top four things you'll need. <laughs> this sounds like a piece right here. <laughs> there you go. The how four to, movements. The four movements, how to be a creature. That's actually kind of cool, right? A movement about each one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I have... I have no idea what goes on in the minds of any other creature. I barely know what goes on in the minds of my fellow humans. Oh, yeah. Really. I have no concept. I I think I have too much going on in my mind that I I can't even (laughs) take the time to wonder, like, what is this guy thinking? Like, (laughs) it's just it's just it's just enough for me to even deal with. It's not even it's too much for me to deal with. Right. (laughs) Well, it's always good to, to think in terms of. Don't worry about what other people think of you because they're too busy worrying about what other people think of them. You know, I kind of like that idea Mm. Uh, long ago. And this is also a function of age. You get to be a certain age and you stop caring what the hell anybody thinks about you. You know, you're just you're just off in left field doing your thing. And that that is the beauty of getting older. But uh, I, I, I think most people are so concerned about what other people think about them. They're not even thinking about us that much anyway. So it's uh it's. It's good. <laughs> it's it's funny, yeah, because I've I've noticed that with myself as I've got as I get older, there are there are fewer things that I feel uh, inhibited by, or like yeah. that that would be like four years ago I would have been embar- been embarrassed by, but um, there was a, there was a, a, a unfortunate it wasn't a terrible scenario that happened, but my girlfriend and I were walking down the road the other day. And uh, there was this older gentleman, he was walking up his steps and he had his groceries and he Mm -hmm. slipped as he was walking Mm -hmm. and he slipped on the stairs and dropped some of his groceries. And I ran over and I, I, to see like, are you okay? And, um, and he was like, oh, like kind of just like frazzled and stuff. Right. Um, But I realized he was actually embarrassed. Oh. And so, so I asked him, I was like, I was like, is there anything I can do to help? You know, like, I'm not going to assume you need my help, but you know, 
I saw this thing happen and I feel awful. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I grabbed his milk. I, I put his milk to the side and, right. um, but yeah, that just sort of came to my mind when you mentioned like what other people are thinking and what you were thinking of, you know, yeah, he was embarrassed that he had slipped in public. Mm-hmm. And if he's an older man, he's probably already feeling a little embarrassed about maybe being more frail than he wants to admit, right? And there's that pride thing. And, you know, it's it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 very true. It, it's something that um I feel like with in school, like or not even in school, just as a composer in general, uh you sort of start to uh become a little bit more comfortable with with having critique because oh, yeah. you're, you're you're consistently being uh um uh like what's the word not validated judged, <laughs> judged. thank you yes you're constantly being judged there it is judged yeah <laughs> but yeah and and as you get older and the more pieces you write and the more in your own skin you are comfortable you don't you you accept the judgments you realize not everybody is going to dig what you do and that's fine and you know that there will always be some people who do dig what you do, and that's great. And that the judgment from others is like, okay, fine. You know, that's, I mean, you know, outside of a learning, ex- uh, you know, experience. I mean, when you when you've got teachers, sure, you, you're being not only judged, but you're being informed as to what might be more helpful choices to make and different approaches to things. You know, that's all how how we get better at what we do. But you know, once you're out there in the world doing it, you are going to be your own harshest judge in a sense, right? And you're the one judging yourself um, because unfortunately composers don't have editors. So it's up to us to be our own editors, uh, which is tricky. But yeah, I think just embracing the fact that we, we're we not out there to please everybody. We're out there to first and foremost be authentic in our personal you know, expression. And secondly, to trust that if we are authentic enough and doing something from our heart, other people will naturally gravitate to it. Not everybody, but other people, you know, and to be totally happy with that and comfortable with that. That to me is the secret of a happy career as a creative person is just embrace, you know, being honest with yourself and knowing that there will be some people in the world who will relate to it. I I like that. You know, I like- and that your goal is not to be approved of by everybody. That would be exhausting, wouldn't it? <laughs> to try to be approved of by everybody. You know, I, um, I, I separate from music, I, one of my favorite lines is from a, a Nashville um, a pop star who said, uh, he said, if you ain't, he's he had this great Southern accent. He said, if you ain't pissing somebody off some of the time, you just ain't trying hard enough. <laughs> and I just loved that. I thought, man, that is so true. You know, it's like, stop trying to be so perfect and, and polite and nice. And, you know, all of these things we're told to be. And I'm not saying don't be a good, gracious person, but I'm saying, stop worrying about, you know, every thing just being perfect. It won't be. We're human. We, we mess up all the time. Mm-hmm. Back to bonehead maneuvers at the beginning of this long conversation. And the whole thing is maybe you're not trying hard enough if, and maybe you're not living enough and being free enough as an expressive person if you're being so careful that you're not taking any risks and you're not surprising anybody and occasionally screwing up, you know? Like you have to take those risks. I think it's like number one rule of being a creative person is take risks and try some stuff and not all of it is going to work and that's okay. And I think that last part is very hard for our colleagues to grasp to to accept the that's okay part 
they to them it's not okay they're saying no 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 i have to be approved of all the time i have to be perfect if it's not perfect it's shit and no one will love me and you know my life is over and you have to completely train yourself out of that thinking and just say no 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 the fun of what we do is to keep trying different stuff some of it is so not going to work but it, you won't find the stuff that does work unless you keep throwing the shit up against the wall that doesn't work, you know, that doesn't stick. It slides right down that wall, you know? That's the stuff you don't, you know, that's not going to work. You won't find the stuff that sticks to the wall unless you throw it against the goddamn wall. Right. Okay? She says emphatically. Yeah. (laughs) I've been doing this. My first commission, my first paid commission, 500 bucks, was when I was 16 years old. I have been writing, and I am now 59 and a half years old. I have been writing music for a long time. So I say this emphatically because I have been through these and continue to go. I'm not done yet. You know, I, I'm continuing to grow, but I have been through so many of these different phases that now at this age, you know, you do get to this point of having a little bit better perspective on it and knowing that you do have to try to and keep taking risks and, you know, trying things that are uncomfortable and don't stay in your comfort zone. Just be and just because you know, like you might have pieces that really worked and sell a lot of copies, and you know that you could just keep doing those and make lots of money or whatever. No, 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 no. That's that's not. I mean, you can do that, but there's so much more that is you know challenging and enjoyable and compelling to do. That there's so much about that, like the being authentic, and like what you're saying. It's making me think about actors who I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I, I realized a few years ago that the actors that I like the most are often the ones who play diverse roles. Like they never play the same character. Me too. I feel this exact same way as opposed to the actors that are always the same every single time. And you might like them a lot, but they're totally predictable. They never get out of that comfort zone. They're always playing the same kind of role. Yep. As opposed to, you know, the Meryl Streep's of the world. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. yep. Just like like you said, like uh, going into that uh, uh, into discomfort mm-hmm. and and uh, taking risk. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, like Meryl Streep, for example, like she has to be one of the best at doing accents. Yeah, like any any movie I've ever seen her in, and she has like even when it's just an American accent, but it's a different dialect or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm convinced of what I'm seeing is is the character. Like that character is a real person. You know, like. <laughs> absolutely yeah, she's brilliant yeah yeah she's she's uh what's the one movie with uh um clint eastwood oh bridges of madison county yes yeah she's like an italian woman or something uh was it italian or something i forget i forget the nationality i haven't seen that in a long time uh i forget but yeah that that one's coming to mind right yeah. now um I, i've and never of course, sophie's choice i mean just where she had that wonderful was it polish right polish i think accent. so i think uh, so it was amazing yeah many. many yeah that's that's the thing though like what you're saying about uh accumulating risk and um i i heard someone once say that oh, man what was it? it was something like you have like when when it comes to growing mm-hmm you have to move so far into discomfort that what you're doing is possible. You just haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. Or else if you go too far, then you're going to be, um, you're going to turn away. 
Yeah. Something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense, you know, because because um, I mean, it's like, I mean, I can't think of an example. I don't know. Maybe you've never driven a car before, and then the very first car ride is in like a, a race car, right? You know, like that might be a little bit too much <laughs> for your first experience, you know. <laughs> but then you kind of work your way into it. It's like, wait, these cars are going kind of fast. I'd, I'd like to experience that. I think, you know, like, so. I don't know. That was that wasn't yeah. the best example, but uh, no. But I I think what you're saying is to keep if you continue to take risks, the place from which you're taking the risk is going to be different each time because you know you've you've progressed to a certain point. You take a risk. That risk progresses you to another at more advanced place, and then you the next next risk is going to take you to yet another place from that priorly more advanced place. You know, you're conti- I see what you're saying is that you have to keep growing on the risks you've already taken. It's true. It's true. And what, again, going with the flow and never knowing what opportunities, therefore risks are going to appear that you're going to want to grab with both hands and say, okay, I'm scared of this, but I got to do it. You know, uh, I've done that so many times and it's always worked out really well. So that's, it's interesting hearing you say that. Like when I started this podcast, that was that was something for me that was I've never done this. Right. And in the beginning, like the first couple episodes I did, I was like, oh, I say a lot, I say the same three phrases all the time, or like, you know, um, you know, just like picking out every little thing. Uh, but then I I became used to it and 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 like if I said someone's name wrong, I, I wasn't beating myself up about it later or something. Or like, if I made a mistake, you know, I said the wrong thing or it's like, well, that's the nature of the way this, this, this platform works. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting. Composing is something where um, I think I'm starting to get a little bit more comfortable with actually being like accepting the things that uh, like, well, this might work, it might not work. And the only way to know which it will be is to try it and listen and hear it back and listen to someone play it or whatever your medium is, you know, to, you got to give it a shot Mm -hmm. to know. Sometimes, you know, the more you do it, the more you'll know in your head if something's going to work or not. But uh, most of the time, I think what we do, we have to have the object lesson of listening to it and watching people play something to know if something's playable, to know, you know, if something's going to sound good, if a combination of instruments in certain registers is going to sound good or not, depending on context and everything else, right? There's so many variables. I mean, there are so many variables in what we do, uh, but that's the fun of it. I, I I do a lot of wacky, weird things in, in my stuff. And I, I love, my attitude is, you know, I think this will work. And if it doesn't, I'll know that it doesn't, you know, then I, I can go back and, you know, adjust it after the premiere or whatever, uh, if it doesn't work. Um, but it's always, it always feels so good, so good to, you know, to try it. I did that uh, in the um, symphony that premiered uh, last month, suspended. Uh, the third movement, it's the whole symphony is very percussion heavy. There's a lot, especially in three of the four movements, a lot of percussion. I've got six percussionists and a timpanist. And I keep them pretty busy. And I also, in the third movement, give them something kind of interesting to do with ping pong balls. <laughs> and-
And my attitude was, well, either this will, I know it would sound good, but whether it would be heard by the audience was another issue. And happily, you know, it was. And I, I my attitude was, well, if it doesn't work, I'll figure out some workarounds, but let's try. Because there was no way for me to know, kind of like mixing for an 84,000 seat, 84, seat stadium. You know, there's certain things you cannot anticipate. You just have to try and say, okay, what's this going to be like, you know? Um, so it's, that's, I think that's the joy of what we do as composers keep trying stuff. It's like cooking. You know, I, I look at Dan, Dan is such a good cook and he's fearless and he'll try all kinds of different things. And, you know, it's some, some, the, no meals are bad. Some meals are better than others, right? That's true for pretty much anybody who cooks and experimentation with the ingredients is the, um, is the fun thing. And music is the same way, right? We're always experimenting with our ingredients, which oh, happens to other human beings. <laughs> that's beautiful. I, I feel like that's another thing that could be put on your wall. <laughs> Just Alex's always... wall of quotes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like a nice little, um, uh, like, um, like burnt, um, like a, a wood plaque. That's yeah, like... a wood plaque with the burnt uh, lettering. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I think that would fit nicely. <laughs> It's the thing about, so I, I, I have a question about risk. Is there, is there a moment in your career that you recall that was one of the biggest things that you were or like, felt like one of the biggest risks you were taking and then it turned out to be incredibly successful? Yeah, <laughs> there were several, but the one that immediately jumps to mind, and I know I've spoken about this publicly before, but I was, um, I was, well, the first part of my music career, I was writing commercial music for 15 years, you know, media music for media. And then I switched over in the late 90s to concert music. For the first 10 years of my concert music career, I was solely writing for chamber ensembles, only small ensembles, because I knew I could get performances. It was a good way to build a career, yada, yada. And I, I was happy doing that. I love that. I love chamber music. Out of the blue, uh, I, how many years? I can't do the math. In 2007 or so, 2008, somewhere in there, 2007, I guess, uh, I got commissioned for my very first wind band piece from uh, one of the U.S. Army bands, the Tradoc band. Uh, and that was mind blowing to me because, as I mentioned before, my school growing up, we I didn't have a, we didn't have a band. I had never been to a band concert. I hadn't heard band music. I didn't know anything about the band world. You know, I I had never seen a euphonium. I had no idea. Mm. And I, I, but here's a great example of a risk because I really didn't know uh, what I was doing. As I like to say, I didn't know my euphonium from my elbow and I didn't. And yet I, I decided I have to take this. I have to do this. This would be what a great opportunity because these are wonderful musicians, right? I'll get a wonderful experience. Um, they, you know, and so what I did was I was very honest with the conductor. I said, I don't know my euphonium from my elbow, so to speak. I let him know that I had never had any experience with large wind ensembles at all. I'd done a lot of wind writing for, you know, in chamber music, but not as a group, which is a whole nother beast. And he said, actually, that's why we want you is because we know we've heard your chamber music and we know you're going to do something really interesting. Uh, and I always joke, my standard line is, wow, finally, somebody wanted me for my incompetence. This is incredible. <laughs> Yay. So um, it so I really jumped off a cliff with that one because I didn't know what I was doing, had no knowledge of how to write for band or large ensembles. And 
it was the government. So I thought, holy shit, I could end up in Guantanamo in an orange jumpsuit if, I, if this doesn't go well. You know, I mean, this is I, I felt like into, a little intimidated by the process. I mean, just signing up and people who've worked for the armed forces know this. Any other composers who might be listening, you have to go through this whole long process of getting signed up and becoming a, a um, basically a, a supplier for the Department of Defense. And you have to register and get all these codes. And it's a very big production. And it's a little intimidating. Um, so I went through that whole thing and and wrote a piece that fortunately, uh, not only did I did the piece turn out well and it still gets performed to this day, but most significantly, it launched this very happy career of mine in the wind band world. I never in a million years, if you had told me I'd be writing all this wind band music uh, years ago, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way, I have nothing to do with that world. And here I am, I've written almost 25 pieces for the medium and I love doing it. And they're all different. And plus they're all but two of them are electroacoustic. And the first one was acoustic, purely acoustic. It's called Homecoming. Um, and it, it turned out just fine. And I just figured out, you know, I put my, my brain to work and I figured out, you know, how to, how to do it. But it was a big risk. I was terrified. I was really terrified I was going to fall on my patootie, you know, and screw up. Uh, but it's, I had no idea the, the great joy, not only the music, but the people, you know, the whole world of the wind band world and education and all these things. I'm not a teacher. I'm not on faculty anywhere, but I get to help with education and with music education by, you know, writing pieces, especially for the younger players, right? Writing pieces that give them some tools that I think that they need for the 21st century that other composers maybe have not been doing for them, you know, composers of the past. So I feel like so lucky that I, that I jumped off that cliff and took that risk. So there's an example. You know? uh, that's an amazing example. Wow. Changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And my, the, the wind band portion of my career has been by far the most fruitful every in every aspect aesthetically financially socially everything it's just been a total joy and um had i not taken that risk i don't know you know maybe another opportunity might have come along but that was the opportunity i needed to take so i'm constantly telling colleagues uh and especially younger people when i'm zooming with them and talking to their classes and i tell them this story and other stories like it and i'm always encouraging them to take risks to, you know, to jump off those cliffs. I mean, not stupid risks, not anything that's going to hurt you or kill you or hurt somebody else. As long as it's legal, take the risk, you know, and legal and not going to end you up in the hospital if it doesn't go well. You know, those are kind of the baselines, right? But <laughs> music, the good thing is rarely does somebody die doing it. Rarely. Right. right. <laughs> so I'm constantly encouraging people to, you know, sh get out of their comfort zone and take risks and you never know the huge reward you're going to get from it that you never would have imagined. You would not have thought. The, wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I, I didn't know about that. Um, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard you on the portfolio composer podcast. I don't, I don't know if you told that story or not, but I, and I, I've seen some of your interviews and everything, but I haven't, I don't remember that story. Oh, um, I'm glad because I feel like it's one of those stories that I tell a lot because the subject comes up a lot. It's a good subject. And it's to me, it's just such a shining example of this, a hopeful example for anybody listening. Like, mm -hmm. take the risk, man, because you don't know how cool things can turn out, you know? And like, what's the worst thing that can happen? This is the other thing. Anytime any of us are presented with risk, immediately say, okay, so if it doesn't work out, where am I? 
Mm-hmm. And the answer, as long as it's safe, legal, and not going to end up in the hospital, end you up in the hospital, right? If it's if it's if it's music, the answer is you're going to end up exactly where you were this morning when you woke up. Right. In other words, that's not a bad place. <laughs> it's you're just fine. It just means that you will have tried something. Maybe it didn't work out that great. Maybe you realize wind band writing is not for me or whatever. You know, I have no idea what to do with a euphonium. Uh, whatever your thing is, like, okay, fine. It's not the end of the world. Go back to chamber music or music for film and TV or whatever the thing is you want to do. You know, it's not the end of the world. I think perspective and context are so important for people to have, right? And to just realize you're still going to be loved. You're still going to be lovable. You're still going to be happy. You know, if something doesn't work out and, you know, sometimes it doesn't, you're still going to be fine. It just, you just, you can just say, okay, I tried something and it turned out not to be up my alley, you know? So that's, that's exactly, I I like that what you said, it's all uh, context and perspective. Was that it? Yeah. That makes so much sense. I mean, because the perspective that you have on something is greatly going to impact the way you feel about it. That's right. And if you have a do or die hysterical in a bad way, you know, kind of neurotic perspective, that's going to make it a miserable experience, very stressful and make you feel like an utter failure if it doesn't work out. If something doesn't work out for me, as assuming I haven't let somebody down, assuming the only thing that hasn't worked out is, oh, I've tried something that, you know, kind of fell on its ass in terms of, you know, a musical approach or something. If I'm the only person that's hurt by it, I don't feel like a failure. I feel like someone who attempted something. (laughs) It's not failure. It's just not the success that you had hoped it would be. You know, you're not failing or maybe you're just failing constantly, but that's all a good thing. There's nothing bad about failing to achieve what you're trying to do. It just means you have to keep trying to achieve it. Right. Right. Just keep trying. Um, you know, you have to you fail, 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 fail to get to that place until you finally get to that place. And the only way you're going to get to that place is by continuing to try, which means t- taking the risk of failing. <laughs> so there's no, in my book, there's no way to avoid failing. It's like we're trying to fail, basically. You know, some people say you're trying to succeed. It's almost like, no, I'm just trying to fail. I'm just going to see how many <laughs> times can I do this until I get the get the right one. And frankly, I see the humor in it. You know, I mean, I just, I try to amuse myself when some, some pieces, I'm sure you've had this experience. Most writers have where you're, you know, you just, you're not only are you not getting the right idea on the first or second bounce, you're not getting the right idea after the second week and the 20th. Oh my God. Right? You're yeah. struggling. And it's not failing. It just means it's taking time. (laughs) You're not failing. You're succeeding because you're continuing to try. Failure is when you stop trying. Failure is when you walk away and say, I'm done with this. I'm I'm, I'm not going to do it. That's failing in my book. I'm not going to give up. So um, so I, I think that the perspective of that is so important. And it comes again, it ties back to this whole fear of not being loved and not being perfect enough. And if we can release ourselves from that stupid fear and just realize that the whole ask, the whole point of being creative, the whole gestalt of it is to put yourself in your most vulnerable state, like you were talking about earlier, right? If you, you, you're, our job is to be vulnerable. Our job is that. <laughs> if we're not, we're not doing it right, right? We're not you know, dialing into the deepest parts of ourselves. And so if that's our job, be okay with it. You know, be accept that and know that, you know, we're not dependent on outside approval. We're dependent on inside approval, ours. 
It's the, that's the approval that matters. You know, everybody who writes knows, you know, when you've written something you like, right? And it's like, that's, then you keep writing. You just keep going. And you also know that probably someone else will like it too. So. Whew, Alex, you are, I'm loving that. That's, that's like, you are, you are dropping bombs there. That was. I'm glad. I'm glad. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage everybody, you know, you know, find our happy space. It's up to us to find our happy space. I'm, I'm definitely getting a lot of encouragement here. Undoubtedly. Um, I have, there's so many things that I'm curious about and with, with, with that, that commission, for example, right. You got that first commission and it was like a big risk you were taking Mm -hmm. when you were in that, when you were going through that, like, okay, you now have the commission. Now you have to do it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. Where, where were you? Were you like, flailing were you uh down in the dumps like i don't know how i'm gonna do this and and then like all of a sudden one day you just did it or or was it like you were so motivated by it that you just went right through it no problem i i think it was a combination of everything you just said i really do because i think i'm sure i was absolutely terrified you know in the beginning thinking where do i start you know what do i do and it's really funny because i had asked the conductor um me being the type a type that i am um thinking i've never seen band music in my life so i i'm I said to him, okay, what should I be listening to? And he literally emphatically said, don't listen to anything, <laughs> which was really interesting because he didn't, he didn't want me to be swayed by all the, you know, most band music, especially 14 years ago. What, what's the math on this? How many years ago is 2007? Uh, uh, 14. Yeah. 14. Yeah. So he, especially then, you know, there was a lot of very inside the box, inside the lines stuff in the repertoire. Um, which much of it sounds really beautiful. The voicings, the orchestration is beautiful, but frankly, a lot of it is less than thrilling music, right? It's just not always, you know, you know, the most, <laughs> the most inspiring stuff. And he didn't want me to listen to the standard band stuff, um, especially, I mean, there's a lot of great band stuff, obviously, but he didn't want me to stumble across like some of the less than great stuff and study that orchestration. He thought that would pretty much set me up for just being average. And he didn't want that. He said, you know, you have your own sound, go, go, it, go for that. And I often say that is the best thing anybody could ever do for somebody else is to give them free reign to be themselves and to encourage them to sound like them and to not worry about sounding like anybody else. And that was the other thing I had to come to very quickly when I did realize how superb some of my living colleagues are as composers and orchestrators, et cetera. And at first I was totally intimidated by that. And then I snapped out of it and realized I don't have to sound like any of them. They have their thing going on there. They're them. I'm going to be the first me. And I have a very different sound world, you know, and I realized all the stuff you see behind me here, you know, I'm an engineer and an electronic composer, and I have a skill set that most of my peers don't have. And that's fine. It's just a different skill set. And I want to use it. And so the first piece was acoustic. But then after that, I realized this is what sets me apart. And this is where I got my real passion for writing with large ensembles is to add an equal and additional section to the ensemble with all these complementary and very different sounds that don't sound like any instrument, you know, that I can create here. And that became my, my signature and continues to be because every piece is different. Every single piece is different. I'm never, I'm not using the same sounds twice. I'm using always programming different things for every piece. So it's very creative. 
but yeah, when I started out on homecoming, I was terrified and I just figured, okay, think, frankly, I remember this. I was thinking about it at first, like chamber music and um, thinking about an opening, just thinking about the shape of the piece. I mapped out kind of what I wanted to do structurally and as a piece, uh, what it was sort of about. I had talked about that with the conductor and I, and so the beginning sounds almost, dare I say, a little John, John Adams-y or something, you know, it's this a little bit uh, minimalist kind of marimba thing going on for a while. Um, and it's, you know, it's different than what you hear in a lot of band music. So I just went with my gut and then it grew from there. So this, this is so cool to hear because it completely connects to what you were saying before about being authentic and, and, and writing what you want to write. And, and, and the fact that you had free reign like that from that conductor, that's so amazing. That's amazing. I wish everybody to, that can have someone like that or many people like that in their lives. I mean, I've been, this another reason I love the band world is because pretty much everybody who's ever commissioned me it has that same attitude because they don't know what they're going to get. You know, they just, and I think that's the joy of commissioning anybody, you know, uh, you, you don't know. It's it, faith, We're back to faith-based. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. And that's the joy of it. You're, you're fostering someone's creativity. And, you're, and you have faith in them that they're going to come up with something interesting that you're probably going to like. You might not like it, but, you know, hopefully you are. And to have anybody in your professional life say, run with this ball, just do what you want to do. What a great thing. What a gift. I mean, it has nothing to do with the money they're paying you. That's a whole other gift. But there's the, the whole essence of trust in you to say, I want to support your muses. I want you, you and your muses to go run, run off and have fun, do something interesting. You know, oh, that's so true. That is, yeah. What a great gift. Yeah. There's, there's, great gift. there's so much trust in that. And, yeah. and yeah, like the, the creative freedom for you to express yourself. And, and, and I, th I feel like that would also kind of put you in the mindset of, well, then this, I want to make something truly amazing for you then. It does. It Well, it opens up. I mean, I think I, I will say this. I think the worst thing we can do to ourselves as composers is to set ourselves up to write something really amazing. You know, like the minute you say, you say, I want to write something awesome. You know, you're setting yourself up for kind of disaster. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Really? I mean, it's like a lot of pressure. Don't think in those terms. Just think of, I want to write something very personal or I want to write just something. I want to write the music I want to hear. That's always what I say. I'm just going to write the music I want to hear. And I don't qualify it with, it's going to be the best thing ever. You know, Because <laughs> if you do that, you're just sinking yourself. It's just, it just puts too much pressure on your muses. Um, just if you're just let it flow and be in the moment with it and trust your gut and the gut knows more than the mind does. Uh, trust your gut and just let it, let it out, you know, and edit it. Obviously, a lot of what you let out is going to be crap. And that's okay. That's part of the process. And that's, you let that crap come out, look at it, say, ah, oh, that's crap. I'm going to take that out. And, but I'm going to keep the other stuff around. It was kind of cool, you know? So that's the process, right? Um, is being your own judge, uh, but not, don't judge yourself before you've had a chance to uh, look at what's coming out. This is where writer's block comes from in my opinion, is it comes from people judging themselves before they've written two notes, you know, like they've written one measure of music up, oh, this is crap, I'm terrible, you know, <laughs> right? They, they, they haven't even had a chance to let anything really out, let, let, you know, because you have to do some writing and see what comes out and you know, a lot of it will be junk and that's fine. That's part of the process, right? Like we were talking about. 
but look at the junk, pet the junk, you know, coo at it and say, oh, you're junk, but you're cute. But, you know, <laughs> but that's a little bit over there. That's kind of nice. I'm going to maybe run with that. You know, and you 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 sculpt music out of the junk and you you come, you know, it finds its way. Once in a while, you get your luck out and you've got, you're off and running pretty quickly and you've got a really good idea and it kind of writes itself until about a third of the way or two thirds of the way through the piece when you run, you know, you hit a wall, right? And then you have to figure out where does it need to go? But a lot of the time it's from the very beginning, it's, it's tough, but it's enjoyable. It's like, I think you have to love the process of composing or creating anything. You, it's not just about the goal. And uh, you, you should, I don't think it's good to think about the end goal. Even if, Of course, we're all on deadlines, so we all know what the goal is. But it's good to kind of ignore the goal and just really enjoy being in the moment with it. I really believe that, that the more you enjoy the process of it, um, the better it's going to be, I think. Um, and I've been, I've been dealing with that a little bit for very unusual reasons that um, a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I had uh, something happen with my eyes that considerably lessened my eyesight and uh, has, has made it much slower going for me to you know, work with all these screens and all this visual stuff I do. I can do it, but everything takes me about 10 times as long. Somebody said to me uh, when we, I was talking to a friend about this months and months and months ago, and they said, oh, wow, that must be really awful that everything takes you so much longer. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, actually, no, it's actually quite wonderful because I get to live with these moments and live with this music and be in the moment and be in the process that much longer. Because think about it, when you're trudging away normally and everything goes fast and you're just trying to make your deadlines and get on to the next thing, suddenly if something is slowing you down, it's forcing you to really be in that moment. It's forcing you to pay attention to the process. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So the fact that everything has taken me much longer to do than I had anticipated recently um, is, is actually been a joy because I love living in these sound worlds I'm creating. I'm working really hard at this. I'm, I'm in swimming in this soup. And it's not a bad thing to have to swim in that soup longer. So. I, like you said before, the perspective, Yeah. you know, the, the fact that you're, you're able to take that perspective and, and recognize like, no, I'm staying in these moments. This is beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. So, <laughs> Alex, there's so many great things that that you you've been saying. Uh, we talked about New York City. We talked about sinking periods. We talked about <laughs> <laughs> we talked about commission or uh, you know new works and stuff. <laughs> That's a first for any podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we, yeah, we, we've, we've talked about so much. Is there anything, I, I know we haven't even really touched on some of the stuff we had corresponded over, but uh, um, is there anything that you want to kind of touch upon at all? Or um... I can't think of anything right now. We've had a really free, free, free falling and wonderful and delightful conversation. I mean, it's so fun <laughs> to talk to you. Yeah. Um, what are you What are you working on these days? What is What is your focus these days? Uh, lately, so I have a, a commission with a buddy of mine, Thomas Thomas Morris, who's an oboe player, and it's actually kind of funny. I'm writing my first piece using electronics. Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, that's great. 
Yeah. Um, and so recorded or live or what are you doing? I'm, I'm recording. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting actually. So when we were at Bowling Green together, uh, I wrote a piece for him for this, like it's called 24 by 24. And it's, um, basically a composer gets paired with a performer. Mm-hmm. Composer has to write a piece in 24 hours. The performer has 24 hours to learn it. And then on the third day, the performer performs it. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so that piece that I wrote for him, I'm using the recording from that performance as, right. as a uh, source material for the electronics. Yeah. And I'm essentially rewriting the piece, but I'm using the old material as, yeah, as, as source material. That's very cool. So um, that's what I'm working on right now. That's out. great. It's, it's exciting. It's, 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 it's uh, scary. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, like you were saying before, using electronics, it's like the amount of control you have over, of, over the sounds that you're working with. Right. And, um, I, and it's the ultimate uh, tool for any control freak <laughs> because you are yeah. in so much control of all of that stuff. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, is, this, is this your first elect- electronic work? Yeah, yeah. In in grad school, I took a, I took a, some music tech classes, and I, I you know for, we had projects where we had to make like a seven minute piece of music just you know using electronics and stuff. So I got to do that, but I use um, I use Reaper, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which which has been great. You know, I I don't have all the hardware. That's one thing that uh, you know I have yet to acquire, but within time. Yeah. And yeah. listen, with with very little or no hardware, you can do a hell of a lot mm-hmm. these days. I mean, it's it's not like the old days when you needed a room full of gear. I mean, seriously, you can do so much on a laptop these days. Right. Um, I use my phone to sample stuff all the time. By the way, the, the um, analog to digital converter in phones is really good in the mm-hmm. recording thing you got on your iPhone or Android or whatever you got. And uh, so I do a lot of my sampling that way. And then, you know, there's a lot of free software out there. Audacity is free. Uh, obviously, GarageBand, you know, a lot of these DAWs, digital audio workstations are free. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really the sky's the limit. And then, you know, when you get fancier, schmancier into stuff, sure, you can get interfaces and other things and add to your libraries. But it's um, it's all within reach, you know, it's and it's amazing what you can do with on on no budget at all. So don't feel like you have to have a lot of hardware to dive in to this part of the world you don't so you've got the hardware you need that's true yeah yeah it, i mean <laughs> I, I i'm probably due for a new laptop yeah. i've had i've had mine for like 11 years or 12 oh, years or something yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's slow you what you do need uh, I, I mean just I'll, I'll say in any laptop that you're going to do any kind of music production on lots of ram and obviously a fast cpu and lots of ram ram is really helpful uh-huh. and uh you know as big an internal drive plus as i call them a data colostomy bag otherwise known as an external hard drive i you know <laughs> i always have a five terabyte uh external drive on my laptop at all times it's not my main computer rig i mean my rig is separate behind me it's not my laptop obviously but on my laptop um i still have i've got you know a good amount of uh, storage there too and you can just never have enough so if you do buy a new laptop uh you're a mac guy or uh, I, have, I have a pc okay yeah just look for lots of ram and as fast a uh, pc as you can get that will do the trick for you 
um, you know, until you go into a more massive studio kind of thing. It, you can do an awful lot on a laptop, really. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. I definitely need something with the room and everything because uh, doing this podcast with the video files. Right. The the video files can be really big, especially one like this that's gone on for two hours or whatever it's been. Yeah, it's, it's been two. Has it? I think it's been yeah. two and a half. It's oh been two God. and a half hours. Wow. Um, that's funny. But, uh, marathon podcast. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think you do need data. Data storage is great. Um, greatly mm-hmm. important. Definitely. That's great advice. I, I I'm yeah. glad you're get, you're getting your toes into the, the digital world. It's really fun. The sky's the limit. I mean, think of all the plugins and all the ways you can manipulate the sound from that oboe recording. You know how cool is that? So many things you can do with it. Have you done much digital audio editing before? Um, a little bit. Not not a lot. Not I wouldn't say extensively. And when I did do it, it was like every two years or something, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't frequent or or frequent enough where I can kind of remember and maintain it. Well, dive in with both feet and both hands and all paws and your tail and everything else, dive right in and have fun, chop stuff up, move it around. You know, it's basically word processing that sounds really good is what it is. It's all the same, you know, concepts and you're going to have such a good time doing it. It's it's really just, you know, put things on different tracks, move things around. Nothing's destructive. Always keep a copy. Here'd be a little bit of housekeeping. Even though they talk about editing being quote unquote non-destructive, meaning the, the in most programs, you know, the actual, the original file is still there. It's always good for your peace of mind. Always make, always, always, always make a copy and store it on another drive or whatever of whatever file you're working on. So if any shit hits the proverbial digital fan <laughs> you can always you know you always have your 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 basic material that you can toss back in there uh you, you probably won't need it uh self-destruct i mean non-destructive is um is just that but it's always good psycho- psychologically to have your backups and and that's the other thing i'm sure you already do this but back up all the time mm-hmm. and uh you know keep drives off site things like that it's it's so much fun mm-hmm. so much fun well, that's, that's like a uh, great insurance right there. That's yeah. such a, such a, you know, it, it's so, it's so clear at how, uh, how, 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 what's the word? You're, you definitely know how to make sure this all works properly. You know, yeah. and, and rule number one is expect everything to go wrong, right? So that yeah. cover, cover your ass, <laughs> always make sure that you've got copies of everything. Cause sometimes, you know, some weird thing can happen. And, and as many people say, it's not a matter of if, but when a drive fails mm-hmm. and that's why having other copies of things, even, you know, no matter what you're working on, just, I, I keep multiple copies of, stuff all the time was just so if i screw up you know or if the computer screws up it's it's not the end of the world because because we put so much time into making these files and making these pieces Mm -hmm. yeah it's so smart you'll have to please send me this when you're done with it or want to show it to me in mid-process i'd love to hear it i'd love to see what you're doing oh that i would gladly send it to you yeah thank you so much (laughs) when is there a time frame for when you need to deliver it uh october all right, so yeah, it's coming so up. Pretty soon, you're in the thick of it. Yeah. I'm in the thick of it. Yeah. yeah. About how long a piece is it going to be? It's going to be eight to ten minutes or so. Um, I'm and thinking just o- oboe and track, or any other instruments. Just oboe and track. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm sort of thinking of the electronics as like 
a whole ensemble in a way, you know, and so, which is nice. It's nice to kind of, you know, it's not like writing for an ensemble because you have all this control. <laughs> I, I, I could go on and on about that. Uh, you know, it is, there is a lot to be said about, um, you know, electronics doing exactly what you as the artist want them to do. Right. It's the same tempo, it's the same dynamic, it's the same pitch all the time. It's never going to change. But of course, what you're lacking is the humanity, right? Uh, and all that be- beautiful aspect of human beings and all the variables they bring to something. So I like having both at the same time, the peanut butter and the chocolate all together, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I like that too. (laughs) You get the humans and the machines and they all play nice together. That's great. Yeah. Well, good Um, luck with the piece. Uh, That's have a great time being in the moment and in the process with it. Ah, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, It's, it's fun. Is there so before before we finish off here, Alex? Is there any uh, any like projects you have coming up you want to you want to let people know about or how to contact you or your website or social media, all that yeah, stuff? Yeah, uh, well, website alexshapiro.org, O R G, very important, O R G, alexshapiro.org. You can contact me through there or alex at alexshapiro.org. Uh, socials on my Facebook page is an open book to all. Uh, I post really groovy things there like whales, etc. So I welcome anybody listening, which might be like two people in a ferret at this point after two and a half hours. But um, anybody who's hearing this is welcome to check out my Facebook page and, uh, and uh, follow that. And uh, in terms of stuff I'm working on, I'm right now uh, dealing with um, the final edits post premiere as one does of the symphony suspended and getting that uh, into print. Uh, I am my own publisher. Hal Leonard is my uh, distributor and does my printing and they are absolutely wonderful to work with. And so I'm preparing this for a very big print job because it's a big piece (laughs) and four movements, 30 minutes. And so uh, there's a lot, a lot of prep that goes into that. And that's what I'm currently, currently doing and doing some mixes of other live performances and things that have been coming in to be able to post. So, and I've got a couple of new electro electroacoustic band pieces coming up and a piano concerto coming up. So it's never a dull time, never a dull moment. And if for anybody who's going to be in Chicago in December, uh, I will very much be at the Midwest Clinic. I am speaking on two panels, uh, two, doing two clinics, and uh, and it will be really fun, Adam, to say hi to you in person. So that'll be a, a joy to meet uh, you. Definitely, yeah. I, I will most definitely be here. So uh, hopefully we can make that happen. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoy talking to you and enjoy the opportunity to, you know, sound off about all these things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, no, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on here. And thank yeah. you for being a part of the podcast and uh, saying all this, you know, everything that you, the, the advice you impart and, uh, and being on here for, uh, what are we going? Uh, yeah. Two and a half hours. Right? Marathon, a marathon. I tell you, <laughs> well, be very well and many thanks. And, uh, I look forward to meeting you in December. Yeah, me too. Thank okay. you, Alex. We'll take care. Okay. Okay. Right. Take care, Adam. Bye.